The following podcast may contain movie spoilers, outdated pop cultural references, and occasional f***ing language. Sensitive listeners should plug their ears with their fingers. In three, two, one. And rolling sound, quiet. Speak. Good day, good world. What you watching? Be specific. Hey, wake the neighbors and call the kids. We are back for, can you believe it, season three of Subgenre, a podcast about the movies you forgot you even loved. As I have been from the beginning, I'm your host, Josh Dassel. Every season on Subgenre, we tackle a different underappreciated movie subcategory. So in season one, it was submarine films. Season two was Charming Thief Pictures, and in this, our third season, we're getting lost in a reality-bending universe of movies that play with time. We call them time twisters. And for our first movie in this subgenre, we are flashing back to a beloved 1993 holiday film about a weatherman, a rodent, and a day that just won't end. Starring the roaming legend himself, Bill Murray, and the sweet meat sassy queen, Andy McDowell. In a film directed by fellow Ghostbuster Harold Ramis, it's pretty much the only movie about February we know. Don't drive angry, it's Groundhog Day. And joining me back here in Studio K is a returning guest host. We'll call him a filmmaker, an advertising director, and like me, he is kind of the target audience for anything Bill Murray. I think it's Nick Heim. Welcome back to Subgenre, Nick. What Thank is you this? for having me. Time four for you? Yeah, I think, well, if you count all the Ocean's Eleven uh, nonsense, then yes. I, I count the time. nonsense. <laughs> We're back, just the two of us, and I think we can really dig into whether this is a holiday film. I think that's... <laughs> I put holiday in quotes. It's technically about a holiday. It is, it is about a, a holiday. Some businesses may close on this day. You don't know. <laughs> I, I pretty much do know. <laughs> We've talked about this before. You make films. You're an advertising mm -hmm. director. You make video. Mm -hmm. I have called you a, a target audience for Bill Murray, and I think I'm yeah. pretty accurate on that. Tell me why. People in our age group, you know, men of a certain age tend to have grown up with Bill Murray. <laughs> Age. Um, I think there's a dividing line where people either love Bill Murray or they hate Bill Murray. Mm -hmm. And I will say my my wife and I agree on most films, I would say, but she cannot stand Bill Murray. Like he just rubs her the wrong way. Really? She's just like, so she hates this movie. She hates Ghostbusters. And it's like the one point we disagree on every time. So I've seen the people who don't like Bill Murray. But to me, he's like the face of comedy because yeah. all the comedies I grew up with were Bill Murray comedies. Like Ghostbusters is one of my all time favorites. This is one of my all time favorites. You could just list the comedies of the 80s, and it's mostly Bill Murray. And, you know, he has a very, to me, a very likable everyman quality that, you know, with a little a touch of antisocial behavior yeah. that makes him really interesting to watch. And I think we're going to talk a lot about that as we go through here. We, we may even have a whole segment where we talk about <laughs> Bill Murray at some point, I feel like. But let's go back to the other thing I said, which yeah. is movies about holidays that aren't Christmas. <laughs> right. There's not that many of them, but there should be. I mean, where, where's the St. Patrick's Day classic? I don't see Leprechaun. It. That that's not a classic. <laughs> Since this is season three, my goodness, we've lasted this long. I know. Uh, you know, congratulations. Back, back by popular demand, as popular as this damn show is ever going to get. <laughs> we are 
taking this season talking about movies that are what I'm calling time twisters. Yeah. So this is movies that take a timeline and don't run straight from the beginning to the end. They do something a little different. Yeah, and what's one of my favorite subgenres of movie is twisty time things. I love it. I love it in TV. I love it in movies. And this movie is kind of ground zero for that. This is the, the proto-comedy of the time twister, I think. So let's set this season up for people who may be new to subgenre or maybe coming in on this episode versus anything else and haven't had the benefit of season one and season two. Here's how we work. Every season, we are taking what, in my mind, is kind of an underloved, underappreciated subcategory, subgenre of movie and giving it some love. And the way we do that is every episode in this season will be a different movie. And we're going to talk about that movie. We're going to break it apart. We're going to tear it down, build it back up, whatever it is that we do in the course of that to get a sense of how it fits into the subgenre and why you should love it or hate it or somewhere in between. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that sounds great. I mean, and the thing I, I enjoy about it is that there's kind of two sections that are both interesting to me as someone who loves movies, which is kind of going into the background of the movie and then taking the movie step by step, walking through the plot and kind of talking about all the moments and how they work together. Yeah. So there you go, everybody that always asks me, what in the hell is your show about? That's what the <laughs> show's about. That's what we're going to do. And I chose Groundhog Day as the kickoff for this season of Time Twisters, because quite honestly, you know, when you say, find me a movie that plays with the timeline, there's a couple of them that float right to the top of the pot. And this for me is one of, you know, it's top three. You can tell by the fact that it's become a part of pop culture, you know, you can say you're having a Groundhog Day situation and people immediately know what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. You know, you're, you're having something that's repetitive, that's over and over, feels like you're stuck. And, you know, not a lot of films become that central to the way people talk about things and become, you know, a, a reference on their own. We've both seen it a hundred times, I would imagine. At, at least. But talk to me about initial feelings on the movie. I mean, yeah. it, when someone says, hey, we're going to watch Groundhog Day, what do you think? This isn't a thing that happens as much anymore. But back when the TV was just like the way to do things rather than streaming. You know, this would be a movie, if it came on TV, you were watching the whole thing. Even if you came in in the middle, you're going to keep watching it. It's just one of those that, you know, ironically, because it's about repetition, doesn't seem like it would be, but it is infinitely rewatchable. And I think part of that is the cast. I think part of that is the structure of it is really tight and really interesting. And part of it is it's just, like you said, the base for these kind of time twister movies and it does it as well as it can be done, I think. And it's a movie from the 90s. Yeah. And, and as we've discovered on this show, apparently my major frame of reference for what is a good movie seems to come <laughs> from the 90s for the most part. It's true. Well, and I think <laughs> I heard someone say recently that, you know, kids growing up with streaming are going to miss out on one key thing that we had as children, which is where your family had a random VHS tape that you, for some reason, got obsessed with and watched over and Truth. over again. <laughs> and so you'd be like, I've seen, you know, feel of dreams 364 <laughs> times or, <laughs> and i know where i know where all the dropouts are where right, the tape exactly. has gotten it's gotten I, damage over I taped time it off tv so all the cuss words are replaced Right. This is the movie we're doing. We're doing Groundhog Day. It's from 1993. And you mentioned what a great cast it has and all mm -hmm. of that. So let's do what we normally do, which is really set the scene for this film and talk about some of that behind the scenes stuff before we get into plot. You know what's weird? It is the 30th anniversary of Groundhog Day. Like no, it is Last month. Yeah, 93 to 23. Oh, jeez. That's 30 years, man. So yeah, they're having like the 30th anniversary this year of Groundhog Day. Do you remember seeing Groundhog Day in the theater? I don't think I saw in the theater. Mm. I think I saw it on VHS tape from Blockbuster originally. I saw it in the theater. Oh, nice. But I can't remember in 93 whether we had like a discount theater. Yeah, the second dollar run theater. Run I, th theater. I think I saw it at a second run theater, but I remember seeing it 
in the theater and we'll talk about the shot that sticks in my head is why I remember I ah, saw it in the gotcha. theater uh, here in just a bit. But yeah, let's talk about this. So February right. 93, right? Yeah, when February it came out? 93. Now, last time I was here, we, when it was just you and I, we talked about The Great Muppet Caper and the other movies that came out around that time were some of the all-timers. Yes. You know, like just great films from the 80s that everyone remembers. February of 93 was not that. <laughs> the other films that came out in February of 93 were The Vanishing and Homeward Bound, The Incredible Journey. Yeah, no. Um, Untamed Heart. No. The Temp. Oh. Loaded Weapon, one. <laughs> and then the movie that actually knocked Groundhog Day out of the top spot was Falling Down, which is the only probably long-term memorable film from that. Which is a film we're eventually going to get to on this show should we go it's any more It's a weird seasons. one, man. Yeah. I mean, I think it would be really interesting to revisit that now compared to then. Oh, 100%. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, it was released in February of 93, just before Valentine's Day, which you'd think... So this they, was a date movie. Yeah, you'd think they would have released it on Groundhog Day, but apparently not. Yeah. <laughs> they really missed it by one week <laughs> or a week and a half or whatever. So it was uh, directed by the late, great Harold Ramis. Like, great. And, I mean, he directed some all-time classics, Caddyshack, National Lampoon's Vacation, Analyze This. But, I mean, I think most people remember him best as Egon of from course. Ghostbusters. Apparently, uh, Bill Murray and Harold Ramis got yeah. in huge fights on this film, and they clashed. Bill Murray was going through a divorce at the time and was apparently very difficult to work with, uh, even more so than usual. I was going to say, what was his excuse the other times? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Hi, Bill. But they did reconcile before Harold Ramis passed, uh, and Murray gave a, a nice tribute to him on one of the award shows. And But, uh, yeah, they had 20 years of not speaking after this film. Goodness. It was produced by Trevor Albert, who also did Multiplicity, which is another Harold Ramis film. Mm-hmm. Andy McDowell, who we'll talk about in a minute, also yep. goes on. Andy McDowell's in yeah. and several of the other crew people as well. And as we said, Bill Murray is the main star, yep. and he was the box office draw at the time. Yeah. You know? I mean, he was. You, you cast him, you were guaranteed a certain level of success, and I think he's he's a great choice. Apparently, what Harold Ramis liked the best was the chemistry between Andy McDowell and Bill Murray, which is, I think, absolutely what the movie rests on. Like, yes. The foundation of the film is the two of them. And I think... Bill Murray gets a lot of the attention, but Andy McDowell, amazing. This is peak Andy McDowell. I mean, she she is so charming in this movie. She could carry the movie almost on her own. Yeah. But apparently the first choice for the character of Phil was Tom Hanks. And Harold Ramis said they didn't cast Tom Hanks because it seemed too obvious that he would be redeemed. Where he mm-hmm. said, uh, and his quote was something along the lines of, Murray was such a miserable son of a bitch on screen and off screen <laughs> that the outcome of him like being redeemed was not predictable. And also they looked at Tori Amos for uh, Rita. Stop. No, yeah. they didn't. Yeah. Which would have been crazy. I, I don't know if I've ever seen her in a movie. No. Yeah. So that would have been a very different film with Tori Can Amos. you imagine <laughs> putting untamable Bill Murray with absolutely unpredictable Tori Amos no. in the same place? <laughs> That movie would never have been finished. That, that's like when you put the what is it? Put the uh, the the keymaster with the gatekeeper. It's yeah, the the, world, yeah. the top of a building explodes. Yeah, Punxsutawney would have would have been done for. Yeah. So Andy Andy McDowell, if listeners aren't terribly familiar with Andy McDowell, Multiplicity, as we mentioned, she ends up in, but she really got kind of her bigger start in pictures like Sex, Lies, and Videotape, yeah. uh, which was the early Soderbergh uh, picture and Four yeah. Weddings and a Funeral, things like that. Yeah, I mean, and she was another one of those kind of '90s staples who, as, as you look back now, can you really appreciate how good she was? Mm-hmm. And I think she was a little overlooked at the time. And uh, it's too bad because, I mean, she's as good as, as anyone could be in this role. The The writer of this was a guy named Danny Rubin, and he's a really interesting guy. I read a fair amount about him while we were prepping for this episode. He's very stubborn, very opinionated about Hollywood and how it works, and did not want a lot of the kind of Hollywoodization that happened to his script. Mm-hmm. So his first script started in the middle, where 
uh, Phil was already stuck in the loop. And so it was supposed to be more of a mystery. Like, how does this guy know everything that's going to happen? And one of the like caveats he gave for selling the script to, you know, Harold Ramis was make sure that doesn't change. And Harold Ramis said, absolutely, we will not change that. And then he immediately <laughs> changed it. <laughs> and supposedly, this script was in, uh, inspired by the Anne Rice vampire novels, Interview with the Vampire, or Vampire Lestat, actually, I think. You know, the idea, what would it be like to live forever? And he thought up in this kind of interesting way that someone would, would live forever. But originally was thinking darker. Yeah, oh, yeah. The original script is much darker. And it actually ends with then Rita getting caught in a time loop because uh-huh. she is not sure she wants to be with him. And uh-huh. so it's a much kind of darker ending on there. I think he's ended up with mixed feelings about this because it is a thing that connected with so many people. Yeah. And I think that's what you want as a writer is to you know connect with people. But it was very different than what he imagined it being originally. Mm-hmm. And also, because he's, like I said, a very kind of stubborn writer, he has not had more successes. So this is his one big Hollywood thing. You know, he, has, he had a long career as a, as a punch-up guy and rewriter and yeah. stuff. But, you know, this was his big thing, and uh, it did win the BAFTA for Best Screenplay. As well. And he shares the writing credit, I think, with Ramis. Yeah, Ramis went through and really redid it. And it, as you look at the, the structure of the film now, it's very well-structured. You kind of have these different sections of these loops, these loops. You know, you have hedonism, the depression, the, you know, it goes through these different kind of phases. Yep. And Ramus has said it kind of is, is supposed to go through those, the five stages of grief. And I think you, you can see that in the film. The, the actual time loop concept was not new. There was a, a short story from 1904, I think is the earliest recorded story about time loops. And it was a British military strategist who wrote a story where a man is dreaming his way through the same battle over and over again. Mm. Um, and then in the 70s, there was an American writer named Richard Lupoff who had a short book called 1201 PM, where this guy was stuck in time. And he br- briefly pursued a, a lawsuit against Columbia Pictures after Groundhog Day came out, but it ended up coming to nothing. But cinematography was by John Bailey, who also Great. did uh, The Big Chill in the Line of Fire, as good as it gets. Very good cinematographer. Also a fellow USC alumni. Yeah. Uh, who died in 2019. Edited by Pembroke. Pembroke J. Her- Let's talk about Pembroke J. Herring. Okay. Pembroke, which A, the name. That's a great name. Love the name. Pembroke. Has edited many of my favorite films, a lot of them comedies. And so he's he's editing Groundhog Day here. I think he was the editor on 9 to 5, which yep. find me a better movie than 9 to 5. So it's hard. Uh, he did Multiplicity as well. Multiplicity, National yep. Lampoon's Vacation. He's just, there's something about his touch on a film, and especially this one, I think, too, where where it's really coming in and out of moments and trying to make them make sense when, when there's a loop in time. He's just yep. a masterful editor. Love him. Yeah, and comedy editing is an art form unto itself, like being able to help those jokes land. You know, it's all in the edit. And if you can do it, that's where the timing comes from. That's why the best Saturday Night Live skits are the pre-taped ones, because the editor can actually make the jokes hit correctly. Anytime we talk about films, anytime we talk about people that make the films, uh, we talk about the major players. We talk about the directors and the editors and the right. you know composers and things like that. Uh, we don't often go below that. And so uh, I'm, I'm giving a shout out to somebody in the crew that, that may not hear themselves mentioned on a it. podcast too often. So in this one, it's going to be the script supervisor on this uh, who think of trying to keep track of, of all of the uh, My goodness. the callbacks and, and uh, planting in this. But uh, Judy Townsend. Thank you, Judy. Nice job, Judy. Uh, This film was shot in 92, started in the winter and went through to late spring, early summer. And it was in uh, not in Pennsylvania, but in Woodstock, Illinois, because it was closer to Chicago, where they were all located. Mm -hmm. And they wanted that nice kind of town square setup, the real Punxsutawney, the Gobbler's Knob, which... Come on. That, uh, the real Gobbler's Knob is... Wait, do I have to beep that? <laughs> you probably should. Wait, say it again. Gobbler's... Yeah, I'll put a beep over that. 
the real Punxsutawney, that the spot with the groundhog is outside of town in yes. a little secluded wooded area. And they wanted this kind of town square party area. But they built a gazebo that looks like the one in Pennsylvania. And I saw an interview with Stephen Tobolowsky, who plays Ned Ryerson. And he was talking about how insanely cold it was to film here. And he mm-hmm. said just the cold would come up through your shoes because they were filming in midwinter, February, March in you know the Midwest. But you know, at the end of the movie, they were all sweating because they're wearing these winter coats and it's you know in a warm day. And so what they would do is they would film all the iterations of a scene at one time. So like every time Phil meets Ned, they would film all like eight versions and beforehand you know, they would give notes about, okay, here's where you are on your journey from bad guy to good guy. And I think that allowed the scenes to stay looking consistent across the time loops. And then if you go to Woodstock, Illinois now, there's some markers of where they filmed, including a plaque where uh, the puddle was that he always stepped in. It says, Bill Murray stepped here and you can put your foot in the puddle. I need to take a road trip. Yeah, exactly. Can I write that off on my taxes? It's tax season. You can write anything off until they audit. (laughs) (laughs) We're cutting that part out. Um, (laughs) The movie was very successful. It earned actually over a hundred million dollars. Um, Pretty good. One hundred and five million on a budget of fourteen million, which you know that's for, especially for the nineties. That's yeah. great. I mean, now I think that kind of mid-level movie is disappearing. But I think that's exactly what you'd want for a nineties comedy. And I'm shocked they never made another one. Honestly, I'm glad they never made another. The cast that surrounds Bill Murray and Andy McDowell on this is so good. So good. I think Stephen Tobolowsky's Ned Ryerson character is probably one of the best supporting characters in any comedy. He's so memorable. And like he's on screen, not that much. Mm. But I mean, it's been 30 years and everyone can still remember what he said. And he said when he was, you know, auditioning for the part, he did it way broader than he thought they would want. And he said, I'm just going for this. And they're like, yes, perfect. <laughs> and so he ended up like, nah, <laughs> fail, Ned. And it's, it's still great. And up uh, with him um, in the supporting cast, uh, which, again, we'll talk about Chris Elliott playing the cinematographer, cinematographer, playing the, the videographer yeah. for the news crew, and also uh, Brian Doyle Murray, who yep. shows up in every Bill Murray movie anyway. Yeah, I love Brian Doyle yeah, Murray. His, his voice is the best. Chris Elliott, I don't love in most things, but, you know, he's fine <laughs> in this. Last thing I'll say about it is this didn't win a ton of awards. It was nominated for awards, didn't win a ton of awards, yeah. um, but did win the BAFTA, and that's great. It was nominated for a New York Film Critics Circle Award, and what I found hysterical was it was tied in that nomination. It was tied with Schindler's List. Oh my goodness. <laughs> you know, it didn't win a lot of awards, but I think the thing you can look at now is that in the time since, it yeah. has gone from being kind of a underappreciated film to being listed on so many lists of best movies of all time. Mm. I think time has been kind to this movie. And Roger Ebert actually issued a rare correction to his review. He originally gave it three stars and then went back years later and added it to his list of greatest movies of all time and gave it a four-star review saying, I didn't get this the first time, but it's been 20 years and people still use this movie as a way to explain things in their life. Like, what more can you ask for from a film? And, you know, it, it shows up all over the place. And I think that some of the, the producers and writers have said that people from all different religious groups have written to them saying, you must be from our group because this so perfectly encapsulates our philosophy, even though, you know, that was not the intention. But, you know, it touches kind of a universal theme that a lot of people can relate to. And that's better than the Critics' Choice Circle Award. <laughs> <laughs> Groundhog Day from 1993. Ready to break this thing apart? Let's do it. Let's do it. This is our feature presentation. Our 
our feature presentation is Groundhog Day from 1993. There are spoilers here. That's the point. So if you have not seen Groundhog Day, A, you must be, what, 12, 13 years old. <laughs> Which uh, we, nothing against that. We nothing against that. We were all 12 you, at one point. That's right. If you haven't seen it, please go see it. Please don't listen to this and let it get spoiled for you. But if you have seen it, come along for the fun. All right, let's start. Yeah, we start with this terrible polka music theme that's yeah. not a, it's a very inauspicious beginning to a very good movie. It's It looks like it's going to be a much worse film than it is. But then we immediately get this set up of Phil. Phil Connors, Phil I think, Connors. is, is uh, gonna, his full name. Yeah, it's Bill, Bill Murray's character. Yeah, and you, you immediately get he's funny, he's a total jerk, and he's smug as all get out. Right. And the way you get that is he's a weatherman for some, you know, low rent uh, yeah. a channel in Pittsburgh. You can tell he couldn't care less, yeah. you know, and uh, does not like his co-workers. Doesn't like it. They don't like him. No. And we find out very quickly that this guy who obviously uh, doesn't want to be here has been asked for the fourth year in a row to go cover the Groundhog Day festivities in Punxsutawney, which yeah. he is not thrilled to do. And I think, you know, that's part of the fun is that he hates this town so much. And so getting stuck there really is extra bad for him. Now, this is your third year of covering the groundhog, isn't it, Phil? Four. <laughs> Four, man. Four. Yeah, I mean, and then we get to see Andy McDowell's character of Rita. The first setup is, you know, her kind of goofing around on the, the blue screen. And it's a great introduction to her. It's fun. It's cute. It's charming. And that's, I think, the one word I would use for her throughout this film. Very. She is charming as all get out. Very. And she's his producer. Yes. That, that's the thing we get told is, hey, there, you're, you're going down to Puxatani. Oh, no. And you're going to go do it with a new producer. And there's your new producer over there who is wearing a blue shirt standing in front of the blue screen and watching just her face and, and hands in the yeah. in the uh, the monitor and showing just how kind of innocently sweet she is. Yeah, diametrically opposed personality-wise to him. She's optimistic and fun and interested in things, and he's miserable and smug and annoyed. And so Phil says, I'll be back. He's He's got a, you know, kind of assistant weatherman that he leaves for the, the next newscast, who, by the way, it never really occurred to me, but in watching this again, that that assistant newsman, Kenny, I think is, yeah. is his name, is played by Willie Garson, who lots of people may know from Sex and the City. Oh, yeah. So they're headed out. They've got to go shoot the groundhog yep. once a year. Groundhog Day, by the way, if you're not from the United States, <laughs> is this odd holiday so weird. that happens on the 2nd of February, yep. I think, where we determine whether or not there's going to be any more winter by whether a small groundhog, large groundhog, I guess, uh, sees his shadow. How That's you it. even determine if he sees his shadow? Who knows? But... This is a thing that we do, and it feels like something from the 1700s, and yet it's still around. And so into the news van, everybody goes. So yeah. you've got this team of three that's going to be together for the rest of the movie, which is going to be Phil Connors, our weatherman. It's going to be Rita, the producer. And then there's the cameraman, Chris Elliott, who is driving the van. Nobody else is allowed to drive the van right. except for Chris. Yeah, and uh, I think Chris Elliott, this version of his performance is much dialed back from the kind of Chris Elliott that usually bugs me in, in most things. And this one works okay. Okay, but he kind of plays the quintessential dorky crew guy, you know, uh -huh. and it works fine. Pause on Chris Elliott and yeah. tell me what annoys you so much about Chris Elliott. What don't you like? Everything. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, Chris, if you're listening. I cannot watch you in literally anything. My memories of Chris Elliott go back to the David Letterman show. Yes, and I did not like him on there either. No, where he used to play Marlon Brando. <laughs> that was the funniest. I didn't understand it as a child, and it was still hysterical. And that's the that's the thing I know Chris I Elliott I think from. he's one of those guys who either hits for you yeah. or he doesn't. And yeah. for me, whatever reason, he just always rubs <laughs> me the wrong way. Well, let's talk about him some more as we go forward, because he's <laughs> driving the van to Punxsutawney. As they're heading to Punxsutawney, you get the first bits of relationship building or not between yep. Phil and 
Rita, the new producer, and Rita's point of view on Groundhog Day is, oh, isn't it so cute? It's yeah. just, it's quaint and it's a little town thing and I love he it. Pops and pops up, he sees his shadow. And Phil wants to pound his head on the dash. And right. Not the thing I want to be doing and not the thing I'm going to be doing because I am probably going to be leaving the station soon. I'm off for bigger and better things. Right. Phil is already on to his next thing in his mind. Yeah, and he's he's very assured of his own greatness even though no one else is. And he's afraid that this is going to, to uh, someone's going to see this right. and realize. <laughs> Undercut his seriousness as a That's right. goofy weatherman. <laughs> but we do get some nice gray Pennsylvania footage. I'm guessing they shot it on you know a second unit in Pennsylvania, but it may have just been in Illinois. I'm not sure. There aren't hills that big in Illinois that <laughs> I that I recall not. that they were driving up. <laughs> Depends which part, I guess. Truth. But, and then we get this terrible weatherman song. Like these two songs at the beginning do not give a good feeling yeah. for the film, but they you know it ends up being a great movie. Weatherman co-written by Harold Ramis. Well, sorry, Harold, it was a <laughs> rare miss. <laughs> so they show up in Punxsutawney, our stand-in for Punxsutawney, yep. quaint little town, town square, gazebo, the whole nine. They pull up in front of a hotel, which Phil immediately says, I've been here three years in a row. I will not stay at this hotel again. It's a flea bag. Mm -hmm. And Rita, being the great producer that she is, says, "Uh, you're not staying here. I'm staying here. I have booked you a nice little bed and breakfast. It's good to establish that not only is she kind of fun and charming, she's also good at what she does. So, again, another way she's different from Phil, who is really phoning it in. And she's she's really trying. And making Phil happy, which Phil is happy to point out. You're making the talent happy. That's a sign of a good (laughs) producer. She's thinking about other people. And you know, that's a phrase we use a lot in production is calling people the talent. But when the talent calls themselves the talent, <laughs> it's it's not great. Did he just call himself the talent? <laughs> yeah. And the little square that they pull into, like you said, it's not, you know, this was filmed in a different town than Punxsutawney. Punxsutawney looks nothing like that. No. I've been to Punxsutawney and Punxsutawney <laughs> looks nothing like that. Punxsutawney is its own thing. Right. It's quaint. It's cute. It is not what it is presented like sort of middle America looking town. Yeah. It looks like a soundstage at first. Like it does. You think like, oh, this is a backlot set, but it is a real town. And yeah, the know. clock tower should somewhere yes, be behind exactly, it. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Hill Valley mm-hmm. is similar. Yeah. They're stopped at the hotel. Phil is off to his nice bed and breakfast where he's going to stay. And it's this bed and breakfast, once he enters it, where the time part of the Time Twisters film really starts to play out. Yes. And and it starts the next morning when his alarm clock goes off. Yes, and we get I Got You Babe by Sonny and Cher, which is just a great choice. It has such a repetitive nature to the song. It works perfect. And I don't know if I had really heard this song much before I saw this movie. So in my mind, whenever I hear this song still to this day, I think of you know that alarm clock flipping over to 6 o'clock. Yep, 5.59 to 6. You're going to see that over and over and over again. And it's 6 o'clock in the morning when he wakes up and he wakes up to two things he wakes up actually three things he wakes up to the music to Sonny and Cher like you mentioned he wakes up to sort of like these morning drive announcers that are talking about hey get your booties because it's cold outside it's cold out there every day and he looks out the window and sees what the weather is for the day which is uh, no snow clear but uh, snow coming later and those radio announcers forever I have thought at least one of them was Brian Doyle Murray you know Brian Doyle Murray did that announcer part for the Super Bowl ad, but I don't believe he did for the actual film. I thought it was him, and, I, and I'm listening closely. I thought the other guy was Harold Ramis. Oh, that would have made sense. And it isn't. Apparently, it is two other actors, Richard Hensel and Rob Riley. Um, nice job, guys. Nice job, guys. But yeah, that, that's one of those things in, huh. in watching for this. That's I interesting. found out. Um, but they're talking about the weather. Phil's listening to it, doesn't care, and is getting ready for his day because he's got to go do his stand-up. The alarm clock turning over 
is one of the things that's going to happen over and over again. We're going to get used to that. Yes. And this is going to start a few other things that are going to start to happen over and over that are going to start to become clues to fill that things aren't exactly what they seem to be. Yeah. And number two in this list, kind of number two major in this list, is when he first steps out into the hall, he runs into this guy who really is na- not named in the movie. I'm calling him kind of the jolly guy, yeah. but he's just a Friendly really happy man. dude who's at the top of the stairs and wishes him good morning. Yeah, and I think they do a great job of making these little moments that he has on the first loop memorable, but not crazy, but memorable, so that when they happen again the second time, you recognize immediately what's happening. Where Bill Murray can't stand the fact that he's here on Groundhog Day, there's never been anything better in this jolly guy's life. (laughs) Played by Ken Hudson Campbell, who, you know, shows up in things as wide-reaching as, you know, Groundhog Day and Home Alone to Armageddon. Really funny actor. And Bill Murray just sort of pushes him aside a little bit and and says, you know, it's going to be great. See you later. You know, heads downstairs to talk to and have this next moment that's going to repeat itself over and over, which is meeting one of my favorite characters is the (laughs) B&B, the the lady who runs uh, the B&B in the town called Mrs. Lancaster, played by Angela Patton. Yeah. And she's great. And she has that perfect kind of small town feel. And it's exactly the right character. And, And he is so dismissive. And annoyed so by her. Any chance of getting a cappuccino? I don't know. Any chance of spelling cappuccino? <laughs> right. Yeah. Says, oh, did you really want to talk about the weather? Yeah. yeah gives, gives her the full weather report when she wants to chat about the weather. No, just making making chit chat. And Phil makes his first prediction here, which is his chance of departure from this hellhole 100%. Yes. And heads out the door. That's his first morning at the B&B. Now, remember that <laughs> because we're going to come back to we it. We will definitely see it again, uh, again. Which leads us into part two of what we're going to keep doing over and over, which is, okay, he's left the B&B. He now has a walk into town, kind of down the sidewalks around the downtown yep. as he's heading to the square and starts off by always passing the same guy first. Phil? Not yet. Not Phil yet? No, there's one guy oh, he the passes. Old, the old man first. Yeah. There's a guy on the corner who uh, will come to know, I think, is Pop. It's sort of what Phil calls him over time. An actor named Les Podewell, who is really just a homeless guy on the street asking for money. Yeah, weirdly, he has no lines in this film. No. The old man never speaks. So That's true. I wonder if he was paid as an extra. <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> oh, I hope I hope Les got a little bit more money. Because <laughs> that's usually like the dividing line between how much you get paid is whether you have a line or not. Poor Les. Yeah, poor Les. So every morning, Phil walks past the guy begging for change, yep. typically doesn't give him anything, especially on this first morning. And then we, we get to meet one of the great side characters in film. Ned Ryerson. Ned Ryerson. Stephen Tobolowski, one of my favorite character actors. Old Tobo. He's great. Showed up um, last season, actually, in, uh, I think it was our episode two or something about the movie Sneakers. Oh, yeah. Because he plays Warner Brandis in Sneakers. That's right. He's also one of those guys who's really good at telling stories about the business. So anytime he's like a podcast guest or a talk show guest, he's always got the best tales. Doesn't of, he have his own show or had his own? He should if he doesn't. Yeah, but he should be on this show. He should and I should be on his. Let's make that happen. But yes, Ned Ryerson. Give me a sense of Ned Ryerson. <laughs> who is who is Ned? Ned is the guy you don't want to meet in the street. He is the ultimate annoying guy because mm-hmm. he has no sense of social decorum. He's loud. He's in your face. He remembers you, and you don't remember him, and he wants to sell you something. And that something he wants to sell you is his life's passion, which is insurance. Insurance. And he looks like a guy whose life's passion is insurance. A hundred percent. Yeah. And he's got this great kind of big overcoat with the fur collar and the little trilby hat. He looks exactly right. And apparently he and Phil went to high school together. Apparently at one point he asked Phil's sister to the prom, and Phil told him not to. He did a whistling belly button trick somehow. The whistling belly button trick. 
and Phil has no idea who this guy is and is really trying to get away from him the whole time. Ned will not allow that to happen, follows Phil all the way down the sidewalk until we get to another one of what's going to become a recurring gag, which is Phil stepping off the sidewalk ankle deep into a big puddle. Yeah, and it looks cold. They do a great job of making it look absolutely miserable to step in. Which is another thing that's going to make Phil's day that he always doesn't want to be there anyway even more miserable is now he's got wet socks. Yep, he's got wet socks. He's going to do something he hates and he's been accosted by a guy he doesn't remember. B&B. Yes. Walking down the sidewalk and Ned Ryerson. That's number two. Number three, to cap off these sort of segments that we're going to remember and relive, is Gobbler's Knob, which is in this movie sort of what's referred to as the center of town. Yes. Right? Where the where the Groundhog Hole celebration is going to be, where there are hundreds of people that are out there celebrating and, and ready for this thing to happen and somehow all ignoring the fact that they're at Gobbler's Knob. <laughs> no one should be at Gobbler's Knob. <laughs> at least not in a PG movie. No. You know? This is a family film, sort but, of. <laughs> sort of. But Phil is here because he's obligated. He yep. meets up with Rita to do his stand-up in front of everything. Yep. She's you know, as Rita is curious about, did you sleep well? Yep. You know, those types of things. And she's Phil nice, is, she's sweet, she's charming. And, and Phil's snarky, Phil's his snarky self. He's a miserable, smug so-and-so. Um, yeah, and then we get to see Brian Doyle Murray, finally. Playing the... The mayor. The yep. mayor, yeah. Yep. With his voice. Uh, he's got that great raspy voice, you know. And uh, they do the whole the whole groundhog thing. And you get to hear this kind of polka song, the Pennsylvania polka, yeah. that you get to hear a million times in the movie, along with I've Got You, Babe. And it really just sets the scene very well. Everything is, you know, fine. And this first loop, you know, it just seems like a normal day with a guy that you, you don't really like very much. And the groundhog celebration goes as it's supposed to this first time around, which yes. is the dignitaries, they pull the groundhog out, they listen to him. What are you saying? Oh, six more weeks of winter. Uh, and Phil gives his sort of, you know, half-assed wrap up to everything. Well, it looks like six more weeks of winter. Okay, great. And doesn't want to do it again. Rita, right. Rita says, can we just do it one more time? No, nah, you got it. We're done. Let's get out of here. He's not invested in this at all. So he's done. He's done his duty. Doesn't want to do it for a fifth year in a row. This is four. He, he can't stand to do it anymore. So right. they're all back in the van. They're heading out of town. And as they are driving out of town and getting closer to the interstate, traffic stops because there is, as uh, not predicted by (laughs) Phil early in the movie, now a blizzard. Yeah, and it also shows he's not very good at being a weatherman. He has completely mispredicted the weather, and now they're stuck in Punxsutawney. He's mispredicted it, and he is in denial about the fact that he mispredicted it. He's telling the police officer, no, no, the storm's going to push right past. It's just a couple of flakes. (laughs) So, okay, what do you do if you're Phil and you can't get through to the interstate? They've shut the interstate down because of the blizzard. What do you do when you're stuck here? You try to get someone to rescue you, which is it's kind of a fun scene in between where we're going to go next. But he's on a payphone in a gas station mm-hmm. trying to call someone to rescue him and all, and finds out kind of like in a horror movie, all the lines have been cut. Uh, the long distance lines are down. Now, that's an old fashioned yeah. thing to say. You used to have to send you used to have to send your voice over a line. When I was a boy, we had to use the long distance line. So he cannot call out. He cannot escape. His only thing he can do, all of them, the only thing they can do is return to Punxsutawney and stay another night, which is what they do. Yep. You know, we, we get to kind of see 
his nighttime routine as he's getting ready for bed and uh, gets in the shower, then turns on the water, which is an insane thing to do. And the water's freezing cold. Freezing cold. He does this more than once. He does. <laughs> and you're right. It's every time steps into the shower, then turns on the water, then freezes himself to death. And we have a, a lovely moment where he gets out of the shower and tells the <laughs> owner of the, the sweet old lady that owns the B&B, there's no hot water, to which she responds, well, there wouldn't be today. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, of course not. Not today. And that's kind of the end of Phil's first day, right? Yep. He, he, that's um, our first loop. He has no idea how important that day just was. You know? That first loop, again, if you break it down, morning yeah. with the alarm clock, B&B situation in the morning, going into town, and the square. Those are our four set pieces, really, of whatever this yeah, loop is. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I, I guess he always tries to escape the town for a while, but that they don't really focus on that as much. It's really those are the four main sections we kind of see repeated. And if you figure there's a blizzard that surrounds him on all side. It's basically he's in a bubble in the middle and, and can't get out. He's stuck where he is. Right. That's day one. So what happens? He goes to sleep after his cold shower. He wakes up on day two. We go from 5.59 to 6 o'clock on the clock and we start to hear something familiar. Yeah. Here we go again. It's Sonny and Cher and the morning drive time jocks talking the exact same thing as yesterday. And you know, I've seen this movie a hundred times and every time when you get to this second loop, it's still compelling. This is the most fun part of the movie for now until you get near the end. And like when, you, when he starts realizing what's going on, it's the best. It's a slow realization for him when it he is. wakes up in the morning. At first he thinks, what is it, that they, they're playing the wrong tape because yeah. it's the repeat from the morning? Yeah, and then he goes outside and, well, first the snow is all gone, which is... Yeah, he looks out the window and there's no snow. And then he, as he goes down into the B&B, he starts having all the same interactions again. We meet the cheery guy. We meet the old lady. And he's confused. He's He doesn't understand yet what's happened. And now his chance of departure has dropped <laughs> to 75. 75, 80? 80%. 70, uh, the minute where he meets the the happy guy outside his room in the morning and the guy's like hey you have to see the groundhog same thing he did the the day before and phil grabs him by the lapel shoves him <laughs> against the wall and goes don't mess with me pork chop yeah and then when he gets outside he asks this woman who's walking by where is everyone going she says we're going to gobbler's knob he says, again yeah it, it only happens once a year <laughs> but the lady who says gobbler's knob is the piano teacher that shows up later in the ah. film actually first part of the loop has happened again he's starting to understand and also starting to doubt that he's going to leave because we get that prediction that nice setup of you know went from 100 to 75 80 here on the prediction he's walking into town again of course he's going to pass pop on the corner who he's not going to give money to or he's going to ignore and he's going to run into the last person he needs in this moment where he's trying to process <laughs> all of this which is ned ryerson yeah again. it's ned again and this time though he he remembers ned because he met him yesterday, so he's more able to hold his end of the conversation. And what is it? Pushes him away? Is this, is this the moment where I can't remember when he does what, but it's, <laughs> I know. But he's basically just like, get out of my face. Yeah, and he, the way he pushes him is so funny because he pushes him and he just bounces right back like a rubber band. <laughs> Whoa! And here he is again. And falls right into the same puddle. Yes, and then he's back in the puddle with the wet socks again. That leads him then into this third piece, which is walking into uh, Gobbler's Knob. Right. Fourth piece, I guess. Walking into Gobbler's Knob, finding Rita and uh, telling Rita that, I need you to give me a slap. Yeah. Right? Well, it's Groundhog Day again. <laughs> and, you know, he just does his report again. And, and the whole time you can tell he hasn't quite figured out what's happening, but he's getting a clue. His news report, which in round one of this was, you know, snarky and I can't wait to get this over. Like you said, in this second one, it just has that little note of uncertainty at the yeah. end of, I, I think we're done here. Yeah, I think we're. Okay. this is what it's going to be. But as the ceremony is starting to come to an end and Phil realizes this is the same thing 
it feels like that's happening again. I don't want to do this anymore. He just bails on them, drops yes. the mic and bails. Again, he's he's not going to escape this town. He thinks he's going to escape if he can just get out of here, but it's it's not happening. You know, skip the rest of the day. He's, he's just going to try it again tomorrow. So he goes home, forgets about yesterday and goes to take that shower again, freezing himself to death. <laughs> Does it twice. And tries to call out again. This mm-hmm. is where we verify that whole lines down thing, which yeah. is he tries to call. He's definitely good and stuck. And is told, you know, the lines will be repaired tomorrow, right? <laughs> so so he's waiting for tomorrow. But he has this moment of clarity for a second and says, okay, I'm going to test, you know, whether this is all in my head or whatever. Right. There's a way that I can maybe prove to myself what's going on here. Yeah, and he snaps a pencil in half and sets it next to the alarm to see what happens. And I, and I think a note about that pencil in reading about the making of this movie was that wasn't in the original script. Yeah, I think there was some versions where he would trashed his room and yeah. then it went back together overnight. Trashed his room, shaved his head. <laughs> I think things like that. And it just became too, it didn't work. Yeah, that's too extreme too fast. Yeah, yeah you need to lead up to those type of behaviors. That's where having a director like Harold Ramis comes into it. You know, Ray, I think Ramis shot a lot of that and I and believe so yeah. looked at it you know edited it in looked at it and went yeah that didn't work yeah and I know they also like the all the stuff with him at the TV station at the beginning was added in later as well like that was not part of the first edit so they oh they the did, stuff where he meets Rita in the yeah, beginning it was and all, all pick, uh, pickup shots that would make sense if they if we were supposed to be uh, finding him in the midst of a Mid-loop, day to start with yeah. that's how he screwed over the the writer yes, exactly. <laughs> Danny Rubin here you go we're gonna shoot this thing sorry Danny we've gone through two full days of this thing and it, it hasn't broken yet but Phil has a plan he snapped the pencil is it going to work are we gonna wake up to a new day I mean, I think you can guess. But let's find out for sure right after this. Hey, subgenre listeners, this is Josh Dassel, host of the show you're listening to and founder of Kabunki, the company behind it all. If you listen to many podcasts, I do, then you know at this point or somewhere around here, you expect to hear a commercial or two, you know, ads. This is the time when we hear companies who support a podcast speak directly to their audience. So why aren't you hearing one now? Because this space is still available. Have a business, organization, product, or cause you need to promote? Ask Kabunki how to get your ads in front of our global audience of listeners today. The audience knows about movies. They know about pop culture. And soon, they could know about you too. Support this podcast and advertise on Subgenre or other popular shows brought to you by Kabunki. Ask us more on the show website, subgenrepodcast.com or at kabunki.com. Kabunki, leave your mark. Hey, you're listening to Subgenre. I'm Josh Dassel. I am here with my guest host, Nick Heim, and we are talking about Groundhog Day from 1993. We're kind of getting back into the groove of doing things here in season three. This is the first episode. Haven't done this in a minute. Yeah. You feeling all right? You need some water? Can I help I, you out? You know, I'm doing okay. Well, we are breaking apart what is kind of a complicated movie to talk about, which I imagine, too, I, I was stupid enough to pick this as the theme for this <laughs> season. It's just going to get more complicated from it's here. True. This is probably the simplest one we're going to do. No, I mean, and that's the thing is like, as we're discussing the plot, I'm like, okay, which loop is this part? Like, you know, where does he hug Ned? Is it the fourth one or the 300th? I know. Who cares? Know. It's fine. Whatever. And we're going to get back to doing a bit more of this confusing ourselves. But before we do that, maybe we can take a little break and geek out. <laughs> awesome. On Geek Out, what we do is really just take kind of a fan level view of something that's fun to talk about. And 
why not on this one talk about Bill Murray? Because it. it's Bill Murray. I mean, he's Bill Murray. Like I said before, he's a point of contention in my house. You know, my wife and I have been together for 25 years. We share a lot of the same interests in film and television. Mm. But Bill Murray is one sticking point that we can never come to an agreement <laughs> on. She hates and she doesn't hate him nearly as much as her sister does. My sister-in-law despises Bill Murray. Like, she doesn't even want to look at his face on the screen. She says, I want to see his ugly face on the screen. I'm trying to sell him as a romantic lead. Terrible. And I'm like, oh, I think he's pretty great. Do you feel like she's in the minority? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I know that Bill Murray is beloved. Yeah. But I don't know if he's widely beloved or if, you, like, you either love him or hate him. Is he beloved or is he beloved as an actor or is he beloved as a pop culture That's icon? That's a good question. I mean, and I think his, you know, reputation has fallen a bit in recent years mm. as some people have had some stories about him that were not so great. But, you know, I, I think as an actor, people have a lot of nostalgia for his films because they were so popular. And I, I think this is something in general in culture now is that culture is much more fractured now. Like very few people ever watch the same movie or listen to the same music because there's so many streaming services, so many options available. Whereas when we were younger, pop culture was more monolithic. So I think someone like Bill Murray could become more of a mainstream person where now he'd probably be a really popular niche guy from a smaller subgroup. He has so many good movies. He has so many good movies and didn't start in movies. Let's no. back let's back up here because at least from my memory of things, I, I think he did a couple of things prior to it, but really Bill Murray got his start on Saturday Night Live. Oh, yeah. He was a sketch comedy guy. And, and part of that kind of 70s grungy cocaine-fueled comedy group with, you know, Chevy Chase and Steve Martin and all of them. Mm -hmm. And I think as he moved to films, he brought a lot of that aesthetic with him. He was kind of a, an underdog, anti-hero, Chicago guy, you know, who a lot of those films had that feel because all those guys from SNL and SCTV and all that were of that ilk. He is the one actor, I think, of the early Not Ready for Primetime players He's the one to me that came out of that intact in terms of the aesthetic and really has kind of carried that through all the way to today. Yeah. Just in terms of, of when you think of Bill Murray, there are no polished edges. Yes. He kind of has had a consistent feel for everything he's done, whether it's dramatic or comedic. And, you know, we can talk a little bit in a minute about some of his dramatic stuff as it came, but it still yeah. comes from the same place, I feel, which is that he's like a schlubby every man with a quick wit and a sarcastic edge. And started really getting into the movie end of things with movies, or, or people might have started to remember him in movies right about the time of maybe 79, 80 when he's doing Meatballs, yep. or 80 when he's doing Caddyshack. Yeah, and those feel like an extension of that SNL style comedy that's very, you know, kind of broad and silly and character-based. And one of my favorite performances of Bill Murray, because I, I was never really a Meatballs guy. I, yeah. I was never really a Caddyshack guy. I, I appreciate it. but yeah, I, I, was, I mean, it's fun. Yeah, it's fun. My love of Bill Murray started in 81 with the movie Stripes. Stripes is great, yeah. I mean, for me, it was Ghostbusters. That was my in to Bill Murray. And then I kind of worked backwards to Stripes. But yeah, I mean, I think that time period, that early to mid-80s time was the time of Bill Murray. And I think you're going to meet a lot of people in their 30s and 40s who like, grew up with those things and they're very kind of big touchstones to them. And what I was doing watching Stripes in 81, I have no <laughs> I was idea. Say, <laughs> what, was she like a young child? Oh, no, yeah, I was basically, I was 
basically like, what, five, six years old of 81? <laughs> uh, you know, we didn't watch necessarily age-appropriate things in my house at the time. Um, yeah, we were the opposite. My mother was very strict about ratings. And so, like, uh-huh. we were not allowed to watch PG-13 movies until the day you turned 13. We didn't have PG-13 until later in my childhood. <laughs> well, what was it? Temple of Doom was the first PG-13 yeah. film. If I'm not incorrect, and I could be, Stripes, was that his first go-around with Harold Ramis as a co-actor in a film? I want to say yes, but, I mean, I'm not looking at IMDb right now, so I'm not sure. But let's just say yes. Let's just say yes. I'm going to stick on Stripes because it's the you know one of my first loves of him. Mm-hmm. Stripes was the moment where I realized how funny a jerk can be. Yes. Because the entire movie is him and Harold Ramis just sort of thumbing their nose at authority yeah. in the one place where you really, really aren't supposed to do that, which is, you know, in the ranks of the, of the military. Exactly. And getting under the skin of Sergeant Holka the whole time. And I think that's part of why it feels like an extension of that SNL countercultural move is because it is still these guys are, you know, against the system, against the man mm-hmm. in a way that early SNL felt, you know. And and I think the Muppets used to feel when we were talking about the Muppets last time is, you know, it was part of that kind of countercultural, you know, thumbing your nose at the system feeling. And it would only be three years after that, I think, where we get Ghostbusters, yep. which is really for, I think, a majority of people, maybe I'm saying that, but a majority of people, at least our age, where Bill Murray was the it guy. Yes. I mean, and, and he carries that movie with this kind of effortless feeling where you just feel like he's just having the time of his life in this movie. And I think it contributes a lot to why it's such a fun film. And that's going to be his lasting reputation, I think. Yes. Oh, you know, as we get into the future, people will remember that he's the guy who showed up in wedding photos and, you know, <laughs> right. just you know, basically would, would become a pop cultural icon. To me, he's sort of the equivalent now a little bit of like Andre the Giant on the Obey posters. Like he, he, <laughs> right. he's just he's taken on that. But when you look back at his body of work, I think it's things like Ghostbusters that are really going to stick out because that's where Bill was being Bill. And it worked. I know he was not a pleasant guy to work with, but if we start seeing more stories about him being inappropriate to work with, it may tarnish that pretty yeah. significantly. And I think we'll we'll have to see what, what happens there and adjust accordingly. But right now, I would agree that you would think of him as the 80s comedy legend that also then became just a staple of pop culture. And mostly, I am familiar with Murray's funny work. I'm familiar with Ghostbusters. I'm familiar with Groundhog Day and Ed Wood and some of the other things. But he tried and succeeded in some parts in doing some serious stuff. Oh, yeah. Uh, and I, you know, like 84, he did Razor's Edge. That's not funny Bill Murray necessarily. Yeah. I mean, and I think later in his career, he really got the chance to be dramatic in a way that worked for his character. Like Lost yeah. in Translation. Oh, my God. Uh, is such a good movie. And it's almost entirely because of him. I mean, well, Scarlett Johansson is very good in that movie as well. But I mean, that's a two hander. The whole movie is just the two of them. Yeah. And it's amazing because he commands the screen. He's great. Lost in Translation is kind of where the world weary yes. Bill Murray starts to really bloom versus being the happy-go-lucky jerk. And he sort of carried that forward to a large degree, I think, from that point. Yeah, I think that's kind of been the second act of his career is this kind of like beat-down guy who's dealing with stuff. And he's got the face for it at this point. You know, he's, he's got a very kind of craggy face that looks very worn down and weary. And it works well for Lost in Translation and Life Aquatic and all the the Wes Anderson films. I mean, and he's great in all of them. And some of them he has just a little moment and some of them he gets a nice big part. But he's always welcome addition to those films. And now he's showing up in superhero movies and stuff. Yeah, like I guess he was in the new Ant-Man movie. I yeah. didn't see that, but I... Uh, apparently he's in that and uh, he had a great cameo in Zombieland uh, oh right where he played himself and he was uh, and in Parks and Recreation he played the mayor of the town he did and uh, you know so he's he pops up from time to time and it's always great one of my favorite Bill Murray stories is that he played Garfield 
in the Garfield. I wanted to talk <laughs> about Garfield, so I'm glad you're going the there. The animated Garfield, 3D animated film. But he agreed to do it because he thought the writer, Joel Cohen, was the Cohen, Joel Cohen from the Cohen brothers. It was not. <laughs> it was a different Joel Cohen. So he agreed to this film under false pretenses and then got stuck doing two Garfield movies. But the guy who played Garfield in the cartoons in the 80s was a guy named Lorenzo Music, and he was just basically doing a Bill Murray impression. Like, he sounded like Bill Murray, and mm-hmm. he played Peter Venkman mm-hmm. in the Ghostbusters cartoon. So it was a really weird loop situation where this guy played Bill Murray, and then Bill Murray played him, sort of, later. It's very strange. The Coen brothers doing a Garfield movie I, is another one that I would kind of sign up I for. I would pay so much to see a Coen brothers Garfield <laughs> movie. Odie and the Woodchippers <laughs> sort of a situation. Yeah. Normal! <laughs> couple of things that I will mention to sort of wrap it up is he really hasn't ever won any major award no, in, in terms of like he was nominated for an Oscar, I think, for Lost in Translation, yeah. didn't win. Maybe should have, but you know, that's debatable, but was nominated for that. Has been nominated for various things over time, you know, TV stuff as well, but never really been the darling of award shows. No. And I think that's another reason I kind of like him. Yeah, I, mean, I think comedy always gets kind of the short trip on awards anyways, because, I mean, comedic acting is so hard and yeah. people who do it well are so talented and they kind of get left behind for drama. And it's too bad. Thank you, Bill, for the performances you've given us yeah. uh, in this movie. We're going to be talking a lot about those uh, back to our feature presentation. The last time we left Phil, Phil had had two days of repeats. And now he's going to start trying to figure out what's going on. And now he's got to now he's got to figure out what the hell's going on because obviously something is going on. And the way he's going to solidify that he is stuck in something is when we left him last, he had a test, which was he had broken a pencil, he had set it next to the bed, and if he woke back up and the pencil was still broken, uh, he would know that you know everything was proceeding as normal. If he wakes back up and anything else has happened, we have a problem. And the clock goes from five fifty nine to six. Uh, I Got You Babe comes on for this third day in a row, and by golly, if the pencil isn't in one piece. And so now he knows he's really stuck. And he's got to go through this labyrinth of people that he normally goes through, and today he has no time for any of them because he really needs to get as far away from the B&B as possible and as close to Rita uh, as possible to tell her what's going on. So, I mean, we get kind of a speed run through these same things we've seen over and over again now. Including the (laughs) physical push of Ned harder than he's ever given before. Get the hell away. From me. Yeah. I mean, and eventually he does learn some good ways to deal with Ned, but this is not it. He doesn't even bother doing the stand up today. He shows up to tell Rita, look, I got a problem. I'm going to the diner. I will talk to you later. You deal with shooting the groundhog or whatever it is right. that you need to do today. This is not for me. We get into our first new place that we've been in a while. It's actually the diner that is right in front of or behind the puddle that he keeps stepping in on the way into town, which I hadn't really picked up on until this time around. Yeah, the tip top diner. And, you know, the tip top diner was something they created for the film, but because of the film, it is now a real place that you can go in town. I think it's called Tip Top Bistro or something. It's now a Mexican restaurant. Oh, nice. Even better. As to my understanding. <laughs> but he meets, he now meets it's Rita called there. El Tip Top Cafe. <laughs> uh, yeah, he meets Rita there. Rita rocking a lot of vests in this movie. Isn't she? She really is very vested. This was peak vest. <laughs> she's She's got so many vests. Or maybe it's the same vest. It was 93. 93. It was 93. I could vest, see Vespian. A vestular year. I don't know. So, yeah, then this is one of the first times we get this diner. But the diner, again, becomes something we become very familiar with. Again, they do a great job of setting up these little moments that happen in the diner, dropping the dishes. Someone saying, oh, just put that anywhere. And then by the end of the film, you know all these people in the diner. And it's in the diner that Phil is, for the first time in these loops, going to explain to Rita 
his understanding to this point of what's going on. Right. And he has figured out that he's living the same day over and over again. Hey, Rita, here's what's happening. I keep waking up. It's Groundhog Day every day. Of course, she doesn't believe him. You right. know, why would she? He's never said a true word to her to this point. So no. why would this be one? But he asks for her help. And her response to him is, I think you should have your head examined. Right. And so now we get uh, a cameo. It starts with this enormous head up against a bunch of x-rays that he's had taken of his head and we pull back to find out uh, that it's the neurologist who is being played by Harold Ramis. Harold Ramis. As Egon and Peter Venkman back together again and has a nice cameo as the doctor and nothing's wrong with his head physically. I don't catch any of the seething hate for, for <laughs> Ramis no, in that. No, apparently they weren't there yet. Okay, you know? great. Well, Ramis, the neurologist, looks at the x-rays, sees nothing there, says maybe what you need is a psychiatrist. Cut to Phil on the couch of a really, you can tell, nervous and inexperienced psychiatrist who is played by, and I'm going to get his last name wrong. David Pesquisi. Pesquisi. Yeah. Um, who I know mostly from Veep. Oh, okay. I know him most from Lodge 49. Okay. He's very good in that, but now he's also in Star Wars and in he's in uh, the Marvel stuff too. So he's all over the place. And, you know, he's a psychiatrist, yes, but he mostly deals with couples. <laughs> <laughs> he, what is it? I have an alcoholic yeah. now. <laughs> he's obviously a very small small town guy dealing with a few small town people. And Phil has dropped this bomb on him that he may have this psychotic thing going on potentially um, where he is reliving this day over and over again. The psychiatrist says, I'm glad that you've come to me with this. We should definitely meet again. <laughs> tomorrow. How about tomorrow? There is no tomorrow. No, it is funny. Like the one thing you kind of realize in this movie is like, if you were stuck in a day like this, how much stuff is scheduled for tomorrow? <laughs> if you never get to tomorrow, you're in trouble. Why would there be a tomorrow? There wasn't one today. <laughs> exactly. Bill has gone through the medical end of things. Yeah, to, no to, answers. There. No answers. None. So what do you do when you have a problem and you're stuck and uh, there are no medical answers for it? You go to the bowling alley go and the drink. the bowling alley and find the dude. But there's no dude, just a couple of drunk guys. You know, he, he has a great speech in the bowling alley where he's talking about the best day he ever had. Mm -hmm. He wants to know, why can't, why couldn't I get that day over and over uh -huh. <laughs> on the, in the Caribbean, on the beach with a beautiful woman? Instead, I'm stuck in Punxsutawney. <laughs> and he's stuck here in this particular bowling alley, like you said, with these two drunks. Yeah. Ralph, I think, played by Rick Overton, and Gus, played by another Rick, uh, Rick Ducommon, who actually was in, and I don't, I don't even think I mentioned him by name, but but he actually shows up in the movie that we did as episode one, season one of Subgenre, which is The Hunt for Red October. Oh, really? Uh, there is a scene in that where Jack Ryan is, is flying out to be dropped onto a submarine, and there's a guy on this plane as they're flying through turbulence, and there's a guy talking about, oh, man, you should have been here when we were whatever, like the dude threw up on the radio. And <laughs> it's a character that I remember and never knew it was this guy. Same guy. These guys were also in the cafe earlier. They're the ones who are clapping for the dishes that get dropped. They're just kind of the annoying bums around town. So what do you do when, you're, uh, when you've when you had a, a, a few too many drinks at the bowling alley? Well, when the other two guys have drank more than you, you take the wheel if you're Phil and drive around town and maybe have a few realizations. Yeah, I mean, this is the first of two car chase sequences in the movie, which you wouldn't expect in a, a comedy about a time loop, but they're good. And... You know, this one, there you have that 74 Cadillac Eldorado and they end up taking it on the train tracks. <laughs> <laughs> well, Phil is real. The, re the way they get to the train tracks is in driving these guys home. Uh, there's a discussion that's had 
where Phil, for the first time, realizes that if there is no tomorrow... He has no consequences. There's no consequences for your actions. Do whatever you want. And this is kind of where the philosophy piece of Groundhog Day starts to enter this, which will play a much bigger role. But this is the first moment. This is where he gets the idea for these first set of loops, which in my notes I called the hedonism loops, where, you know, he just decides there's no consequences. You can do anything you want. And we start the whole thing proving that by steering the car sideways and plowing our way through a mailbox, which (laughs) starts the car chase with the police. Exactly. And, you know, it's an entertaining car chase chase and it's well done and i think the fact that he's so blasé about it is what makes it funny because the action is very you know elevated and his reactions are very calm and and chill and like you said they end up on train tracks playing chicken with a train (laughs) they're being chased by the 5-0 and at the end of it having survived this sort of near disaster with the train and gotten away from the cops and all of that phil is really elated he's like it's the fun part of eternity. I can do anything I want to and there are no consequences. That's great. That's great. Yeah. And he gets, you know, thrown in jail, but then he's right back in bed. But then he's right back in bed for day four. Wakes up on day four, looks around. Instead of being disappointed that it's day four, he is elated that he's not still in the jail cell where he ended at the at the end of day three. And off he goes to sort of test this super new existence. Yeah, I mean, yeah. he has like a superpower where he can just live a day and do whatever he wants and it's, no, it doesn't count. And makes the best of it in the, the maze of going downstairs, tells the B&B lady to save his room for another night and kisses her. Right. You know. Yeah, he's on cloud nine for now and figuring out that he's he can do whatever he wants. Still ignores pops on the corner, but does take a giant swing and knocks the crap out of Ned. <laughs> Which, you know, it's kind of entertaining and you kind of wanted him to do it the first time (laughs) and does his first moment of breaking the loop in some small way when he remembers that there's the puddle yes yeah he escapes one of the things that he kept doing and watches someone else step in it and so now he feels like he's really got a handle on this loop you know now that theoretically you could be immortal yep that you have this superpower so what do you do you go sit in the diner again and stuff your face with pastries eat everything on the menu get one of everything and eat them all and watch Rita become (laughs) increasingly disgusted by this pig of a human that's in front of her. It's true. Supposedly, Bill Murray made himself very ill eating all of these pastries and that's because (laughs) he didn't spit them out at the end. I may be glad for that if I'm Andy McDowell, like not watching Bill Murray, like hose these pastries and then (laughs) into the the spit bucket like he's at a a winery. The grossness. Yeah. Yeah. But her character, Rita, obviously, this is not the type of person that she finds herself liking to be around. No. She thinks he's disgusting. She thinks he's egocentric. She quotes some poetry at him to prove that point. Yep. And in the midst of doing all of this, these things that we had heard the previous time, they were in the diner like a busboy dropping some dishes and Larry showing up to say they need to get going so they can stay ahead of the weather. These things happen again. Yep. They're still looping. And he's really starting to get a handle on when it all happens and he knows everything before it occurs. The thing he doesn't know yet, which he notices on the way out the door, is there's this lovely lady who is sitting at her own table alone near the exit, who we will come to know as Nancy, um, played by Marcia Garrity. And he stops just to ask her a few questions. You know, basically some cheat codes by finding out where she went to school, who her teacher was, you know, all this stuff so that the next day he can pretend to already, you know, pull a Ned Ryerson on her, basically, to say, hey, don't I know you from such and such? 
such school, it's a devious plan. And day five is the first time we don't wake up with him and go through that whole morning routine. Yeah. We know that that's not a bad thing for him anymore. And so where we find him is right before he finds Nancy on the square. Yeah, and we start skipping time here. Like we've seen every bit up to this point and we start skipping time. And I think that leads to an interesting discussion, which is how long was he stuck in this day? And there's been different people who've talked about this at different times. The original writer said that he thought he was stuck for a thousand years mm -hmm. in this same day. Now, Harold Ramis says that's not how they wrote it in the final draft, that they assumed he was there. In one interview, he said 10 years. In another one, he said 40 years. I was going to say, I'd read somewhere around 30, but I'd yeah. also heard as high as 10,000. Yeah, so the original script had him stuck there for thousands of years. Yeah. And that was deemed too much. <laughs> now, if you actually look at, there is shown 38 different days in the film, day or a part of a day. But in a lot of those, he's already talking about things he's done. Yes. So, you know, they do a good job of showing you without having to see all of it, but showing you he's been there a while. Like when he's sitting waiting, you know, we'll get to this in a few, but when he's waiting for the armored car, yeah. he already knows what's going to happen all around him. This happens, then the bird, then the horn. And so you can tell he's been there a while. And right? he's going to demonstrate some skills later, too, that yes. show that he, you know, you're not going to learn those overnight. You're not going to learn them in a week. You're yeah. And I think the skills are where you can pick the biggest clues as to how long he's been there because he learns how to sculpt. Yeah. you know, multiple things. And he learns how to play the piano. Each of those takes years to learn. And so he's definitely there a while. And so no hot water ever. God. You <laughs> no think, hot shower. You'd think after a while he'd figure out another, another plan, but right. that one never seems to click. No. His plan today in day five is he's gotten this information about Nancy. He's going to make the best of this day. Yeah. And so he shows up sort of like, I remember you. You may not remember me. Yeah. But here's all the things I know about you. And aren't I endearing because I do that? Yes. And make himself look important by pointing out that he's going to be on TV. And mm -hmm. so now you've got this beautiful woman who thinks that you're old friends and you've got a built-in date already. Which we cut the date part, really, and, and end, <laughs> up, end up with them making out in front of the fake fire. He's calling her Rita. <laughs> and this is right. And so this is, you know, whether, depending on how you look at it, this is the first or second time we've gotten an inclination to me that he kind of sees something in Rita. And this is the first time he's ever sort of expressed it in yeah. calling Nancy by Rita's name while he's making out with her. Mm -hmm. But in that very first scene where he's a weatherman and he sees her playing on the blue screen, there is that kind of moment at the end of, oh, this is kind of an interesting woman, although I'm not going to say that to anyone else. Right, yeah, and I think they both do a good job of giving enough of a hint that they find each other intriguing, but then they keep getting repulsed from each other by different things. But, you know, they set up the fact that maybe there could be something, like they have an initial interest in each other, but then it kind of blows over. And this moment also with him with uh, Nancy is planting for something that's going to happen later as well. Uh, a, it's planting for just his feelings of Rita and that there may be some there. And B is him using I love you as a means to get what he wants with yeah, women. No, Nancy falls for the dumbest line here. I mean, it's <laughs> will you marry me? Will on you marry my me? First date. <laughs> Come on, Nancy. Rita takes a lot more convincing and, and it doesn't work on her, but it gives him the idea and also the idea of like trying to pick someone's brain on one day to then have an advantage in the conversation the next day. Mm -hmm. Like it's all very self-serving, but trying to basically game the system. You're trying to play the game and get in good with someone just by being what you think they want you to be. And it also does a really good job of reinforcing, actually escalating, I guess, how jerky he is. Oh, yeah. So that's a pretty scuzzy move. Yeah. It, no, it's, it's incredibly scuzzy which, you know, is 
bad for him as a human being, but great for him as a character. Yes. Because it gives him even more to have to overcome that this loop, why ever it's happening, is there to do. And let's think about this for a second, too, yeah. which we haven't talked about, which is why the hell is this loop happening anyway? Yeah. Well, apparently this was something that the studio really pushed to include was some sort of scene where he gets like a curse put on him uh-huh. or some kind of thing that happens. And so they kept adding it to the script and then purposefully not shooting it so that they didn't have to put it in because neither Ramis nor Ruben wanted it in the movie because they said it doesn't matter. Like, But Liar Liar is a similar kind of uh-huh. movie, you know, but that's a kid's birthday wish. Is it better because you know it came from the kid's birthday wish? No. I don't, I don't think so. The answer is no. I think having it just be a thing like karma is trying to teach you a lesson works for me at least. I, it, it works for me too. And I think that anytime there's a simple... They just have to get to this point thing in a movie to make something happen or break it or whatever. It's too neat. Yeah, well, and it, then it ends up being you want to kind of like lawyer it. You know, you're yes. like, we'll find a loophole, find a thing. Well, if you can just get in the vicinity of this or if you can say the right thing, whereas if it's he actually has to make an actual change of heart, there's no quick way around it. And you're not going to have people for 20 years debating. Well, actually, he could have just gone to the shrine and touched it with his cane. It feels like there's this change in Phil, some particular change in Phil that has to happen before everything's going to write itself again. But there are lots of theories out there on exactly why certain ways that he changed himself didn't work. Oh, interesting. And that it may not be up to him at all. Yeah. That there are other characters in the film who are actually the ones who institute the change. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think you could really, really have an interesting discussion about the philosophy of this movie because... Like we said, it falls under the purview of a lot of different spiritual and religious groups because there's something kind of universal about it. The idea that change has to be legitimate because there are times he changes throughout this whole thing. Yes. But he has to actually let go of himself and stop being centered on himself and focus on others for real and before anything can ever change. And there has to be something, and we'll get to this, I think, in a, in a little while, but there has to be something beyond just doing a selfless act because I think he does a selfless act or two prior to the loop breaking. Yeah, The I loop so. still keeps going. So there, there's something else in there. Yeah. We'll keep looking at it as we're going through, see if we can come up with any other enlightenment here. But he's had this night with Nancy. Mm-hmm. The next day or however many days later it is, we come to the scene that you had mentioned, which is Phil taking advantage of his pre-knowledge of things and finding a way to make a living in this world, which is stealing money. And this is where you start to see, A, he's been here a long time, and B, he kind of has a superpower now. Like, he knows so much, and this is he does say something like this near the end, where he says, maybe God is just so old that he knows everything that's going to happen. And, you know, he now knows enough that he can start playing the game and getting exactly what he wants. And I absolutely love what he does with the money, <laughs> at least that we get to see immediately after having well, stolen a bag of cash. Like Clint Eastwood. <laughs> he buys a Mercedes. He dresses up like Clint Eastwood in The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. And he takes a lady on a date telling her to dress up like a French maid. <laughs> and she thinks they're going to a party, and they are not. They are not. They're going to the movies. They're not seeing the Eastwood movie, are I they? I don't know. On the marquee, it says Heidi 2. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great gag. 
which he says he's seen over a hundred times. That's rough. Nancy passes at that point and he, you know, says hi to her. She has no idea who he is because they made out in some other universe and he tells the lady that he's with that that's his ex. Right. That's a a good question. You said other universes. I wonder if each of these days spawns a different universe with the consequences of that one. Like, are there now 40 years worth of different timelines where Phil did one different thing? We need a flux capacitor. We need a sequel. (laughs) We need Groundhog Day 33 and a third. No, we don't. We don't. (laughs) We don't. Last note on this scene is just, I keep calling her the date, but the lady in the French maid costume is an actress named Sandy Mashmeyer, who didn't do a ton in her time in the movies or in TV, but got her start on a television show that, if I read correctly, several of the people in this movie actually all got their start on, which was Knight Rider. Oh, I love Knight Rider. Yeah, so you got a Knight Rider connection. I loved Knight Rider because I'm a middle-aged man. (laughs) I got my son into Knight Rider there for a short bit. Just for a little bit. It's good when you can make them watch the crap that we had to watch. Absolutely. <laughs> so we move the timeline forward again for another day at Gobbler's Knob. Another day at Gobbler's Knob would be a great name for a band. Let's start it. <laughs> let's, let's, let's we'll not. only play the Pennsylvania polka <laughs> and various remixes yes. of that song. Oh, man, we're going to make dozens of dollars. <laughs> Phil has started to kind of develop this philosophy around his situation, thinking about eternity and superpower and the rest of it, and finally takes this to Rita and poses the question to Rita, if you only had one day to live, what would you do? And she doesn't take it for what it is, which is him honestly asking. She takes it as him trying to get a date, which may also be what he's asking. Yeah, I think that's definitely part of what he's doing. But I mean, he he is legitimately asking. And I think one of the interesting things about this concept is he now knows these people so well and they don't know him at all. Like he has, you know, months, if not years of experience with Rita and she's met him 12 hours ago. So it's a really weird one sided relationship. So he wants to get to know her and is taking the opportunity to do so. And he does it at the diner, you know, takes out, buy you a cup of coffee and we'll go to the diner. So they go back to the diner, sitting at their same table they've sat at the entire time. And he starts giving her the question list of, tell me about you, tell me about your perfect guy. And we now know his game plan because we've seen it with Nancy. It's, uh-huh. it's well set up. The script is very well structured. You know, you really know exactly what he's going for from the beginning. And she has a very long list of what she wants in her life. For herself, she wants a career, she wants love, she wants to be married, etc. And as far as her perfect guy goes, there's a a pretty long list that starts with uh, humble, intelligent, and supportive of which... Me, me, me. (laughs) Phil says he is every one of those things. He does this better than almost anyone, is that line between being a smug jerk and being charming and funny like he's really walking that line and he's starting to move slightly off of the smug jerk line you know he's still a jerk but he's a little bit nicer like you can kind of see the spectrum of phil widening and he's making sure to get across to her that all these things that she's looking for he's so close yeah (laughs) he's so close on all of them this is a a man we're talking about what is it he has to change poopy diapers yes does he have to use the word poopy (laughs) Um, and he has to play an instrument that's going to come in a little later and he loves his mother and phil me me, me yeah so he now knows what rita needs he just needs the opportunity to use that information and as soon as possible yes and so now he's going through the list and trying to make himself into the guy that rita would like and he starts this sort of soon as possible thing like he could wait till tomorrow right but he doesn't he finds his way over to the news van 
pulls whatever it is. He pulls the entire distributor cap out, which as anyone who's opening the hood is going to be like, oh, there's the whole distributor cap is missing and all the plug wires. (laughs) But you're not going anywhere anytime quickly. But it would would take about one second to figure out what was wrong with your engine. (laughs) Strands them for the night because it saves them the time of having to drive out, get in the blizzard and come back. They're just going to be here for the night. So you're stuck in Punxsutawney for the night. What do you do? You sit at the hotel bar, which is where uh, we find Rita and Phil comes to join her. We start learning what her things are that she likes. Mm -hmm. And so I've always remembered this, that she likes sweet vermouth on the rocks with a twist, twist. just sweet vermouth as a drink, which is a very unusual drink. But apparently it was Harold Ramis' wife's favorite drink, which is why it ended up in the film. And I don't think I've ever just had a sweet vermouth on the rocks. I feel like at some point I must have just cracked the bottle open and tried it just because of this movie, yeah. but I also, apparently I've, blacked out. I've learned recently that there's a very big difference between the normal sweet vermouth you get in the store and like the good stuff, mm. which I never knew you could get. I just started for making like cocktails and stuff. Man, it's it's way better. Okay, I need to do that. <laughs> yeah. Total wine. Total wine. Total wine. They could be a sponsor. Total, total wine. Total wine and more. Your ad could go here. <laughs> so he orders his drink, Jim Beam. She orders her drink, sweet vermouth, rocks with a twist. He puts that in the old memory banks. Yep. And we start this very quick loop of seeing day after day of him trying to perfect this routine. Yeah. Then he asks her, you know, what should they toast to? The groundhog. And she says, I always drink to world peace, which that's an insufferable thing to say. (laughs) (laughs) She is wearing a vest and it is the 90s. So many vests. So then that becomes part of his routine on the next time. I like to say a prayer and drink for world peace. Amen. Oh, and there's the, it reminds me of... Oh, Rome in the with the sun hitting the buildings. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. so specific, the answers that he's able to give her day after day, that it's got to be playing back in her head in sort of this, you know, very deja vu-y, yeah. you know, magical way. And he does a great job, Bill Murray does a great job of playing it so that each time through, there's always the first time that feels natural, and then the next time where he's faking it. And I think we'll we'll get to that with the snowball fight later where the ultimate... Oh, yeah, that, that definitely. But, like, even on this stuff, when, you know, the first time he says, let's toast, it feels genuine. And the second time it feels like a line, Mm -hmm. you know, and he does that really well. Each time it's a little faker. A shout out here to the actor who is playing the bartender in this scene. His name's John Watson Sr. He never says a word. No. He just stands there polishing glasses. But there's something about the way he's watching Bill Murray go through all of these iterations that you almost get the sense that he knows what's happening. You know, for a minute, you're like, is he in on this loop too? Yeah. Here's a question for you. Is it the same shot of that guy that they use later when it's Chris Elliott and Nancy at the bar? I feel like it might be. It may be. And I I knew that dude looked familiar when I was watching this. And it turns out he's the guy, he's a character that I remember from The Fugitive. Oh, okay. um, if you watch The Fugitive, there's a guy that works in the hospital named Bones who's helping Harrison Ford's character get some samples or whatever and kind of you know spills the beans to the police a little bit. But he's that same guy. So cool little actor. And so off they go to do other things besides sitting at the bar, like going to a fudge shop. Yeah, they go to the fudge shop. And in the fudge shop is a moment that I like where she asks him the most pertinent question that you could ask him, which is, do you ever have deja vu? And he just brushes it off with a joke. And I'm like, this is the question, right? Like (laughs) he is having the ultimate deja vu. But again, he's just collecting information. You know, she doesn't like white chocolate. Later he learns she doesn't even like the fudge at all. (laughs) And they go to dinner, I think, the first time around when they first leave the bar, they actually go to dinner and have a, a little bit of an extended conversation where we have that little mini loop again where he's asking her what she studied yeah. in college. 
God. And she tells him 19th century French poetry. He's like, oh my God, what a waste of time. <laughs> Which then has, For has to live else. through a whole other day of getting back to this moment so he can fix it. And then he repeats a French poem, uh, which apparently the translation of is, the girl that I love will be like a fine wine that will become better a bit every morning. Well, there you go. There we go. I'm, I'm sold. You, uh, you mentioned the snowball fight. I think it's after this dinner scene where they have a bit more of a connection now that he's able to quote French poetry at her and whatever. And yeah, she's we like, finally get to feel their real chemistry in this scene. Like, they kill it in this scene. They're wandering through the park. They have, I think they have a dance under a gazebo or something. Like, it's it's a really... Yeah, they have that Ray Charles song, You Don't Know Me. It's a great song. It's just a great moment. That whole scene is so well composed. It's just a great romantic scene. Mm-hmm. And you finally feel like, hey, these two actually connect. Like, there's something there. And if he had come out of the loop right then, he would have had a shot with her the next day. Yes. But he would not actually have been any different. He has just connived himself to being this fake version of the guy she might like. But, you know, you can see it's almost working. His plan is almost working. Well, he's kind of figuring out, too, in a bad way, like the the means to getting there is bad. But he's getting the information about how to be a better person. Yes, like or at least pretend to be a better pretend, person. Pretend right, yeah. fake it till you make it. Yes, exactly. It's kind of what he's doing. And and in the midst of this really nice, lovely date that they're having, they're out in the park, they're walking by the gazebo or whatever, a bunch of kids start a snowball fight mm-hmm. and the snowball fight kind of concludes with Bill Murray and Andy McDowell falling into the snow together face to face alone. It's a very nice romantic moment. And especially then once you see the next loop, like it's so poignant because this is a true moment. This is an actual, you know, spur of the moment thing that happened. And then he tries to recapture it and it just falls apart. It's so hard to watch. (laughs) But the realism in this moment and really the feeling of sparks flying between both of them feels very genuine. It feels very earned, even if it was earned dishonestly. And he walks her back. I think it's back to the... Yeah, the, the B&B. B&B and invites her up. And then he gets very creepy and overbearing and pushy and all the things yep. that a creepy guy like him can be. And the whole thing falls apart. Because, well, he's he's working on his own timeline. Right. He knows I mean, there is no tomorrow. Right. He can't do a second date. It's first date or nothing. And so he's pushing her into something she doesn't want to do. She's yep. trying to be uh, you know, gentle about it and, and extract herself from the situation. But at some point, there's just too much... For her to handle yeah. and too much in terms of the setup because I think he goes and finds her favorite flavor of ice cream that's been sitting on the you know windowsill or yeah, whatever. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and, and now he's starts to see the thing come apart at the seams. Like there's only so much you can do by pretending to be the right person. And eventually you have to be the right person and he cannot be. He's not there yet. Not yet. And we get, you know, we've had these sort of quick cut loops uh, first at the at the bar, then at the dinner. We get our third one here, which is she's not going to have any more of what he's doing and smacks him upside the head. Yeah, we just get a whole series of slaps. And apparently in the production, he told her to just slap him for real as hard as she could. <laughs> and the series of slaps then pushes us back into him trying to recreate the magic. Yes. Which is where you were talking about. It's Bill Murray acting in a way to show overacting like he's trying to do in a fake way what happened naturally the first time and it's so forced and she just kind of starts drawing back like what the hell is this it's so painful to watch because you can see what he wants he wants to recapture the moment and you can't do it it cannot be redone nothing is ever going to be as good as that first time and at some point he's realizing that yes and And that's that's going to push us into our next phase where he really hits the wall you know 
Well, let's talk about that when we get back. That sounds depressing. Let's go do something fun during the break. We'll be back. Woohoo. Sorry. <laughs> hey, have you listened to the Art Curious podcast? Have you read the book? Have you watched the YouTube channel? No? I just, what are you doing with your life? Art Curious is a universe of content about all things unusual in art. It's the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful. It's hosted by the lovely and talented Jennifer Dassel. That's my wife. And it's the most bingeable content around. Is the Mona Lisa a fake? Was Vincent Van Gogh murdered? Was Donald Duck responsible for beating the Nazis? And what was the deal with Andy Warhol? Like, really, what was the deal? Listen, read, and watch fascinating stories like these and more when you subscribe today to Art Curious. Visit artcuriousmedia.com for more. Art Curious. Listen, read, watch. Art. You're listening to Subgenre. It is the first episode of season three. We are talking about time twister movies this season, and we are starting off our season talking about Groundhog Day from 1993. And it just keeps getting more complicated to talk about. It really does. Keeping in, like your brain on which loop you're on. I'm sure production of this was a nightmare. I, no, I'm sure. And editing this was a nightmare. I am sure. We'll keep teasing our brains around here in just a second. But before we do, let's do a segment called Line Please. <sighs> Line Please. Cut. There are certain movies that are just meant to be quoted <laughs> over and over and over again. And dollars to donuts, this is one of those. There's so many quotes. I don't know if, if they're ones that like get as much attention as some of the more famous ones, but this movie's full of quotable lines. And there's a few in here that have made it into, at least in our family, a regular rotation. I love hearing what other families use as like their quotes, because sometimes it's the most random stuff. And we and there's a there's hundred quotes we could go through. We, we won't be able to hit them all and probably shouldn't. No. But are there a few for you that uh, stick out as ones that you love? Yeah, I mean, I think anything that Ned Ryerson says yeah. is quotable. You know, as soon as he says, fail, it's Ned. Needle nose Ned, Ned the head. Um, but I think when, when the, Phil has so many great sarcastic lines, one where he says, this is one time where television really fails to capture the true excitement of a large squirrel predicting the weather. <laughs> <laughs> just a good one. His other one that I pair with that in my mind is the one where he's just, he's over it and he's been through this so many times <laughs> and he's yelling at the crowd. <laughs> Groundhog Day used to mean something. They used to pull a rat out. They used to eat it. You're hip. <laughs> Secrets. It's so good. Don't drive angry. Don't drive angry. Yep. Yeah, which was an ad lib. Yes, and apparently he was attacked by the groundhog and had to go to the hospital during that scene. <laughs> he was bit in the finger by the groundhog. And had ra had rabies shots yep. or something, if I read that right? Yep, exactly. Yeah. The couple of them that have made their way into our family vernacular, one of them is a line that Phil gives in the diner to the two drunks, which is, morons, your bus is leaving. <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah. The other is, well, actually, there's probably more than, than these two, but the other one is, when they have been pulled over by the cops after the car chase and Phil rolls down the window and the guy next to him orders flapjacks and Phil goes, too early for flapjacks? <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah. 
And then I think, you know, the one I always think of is, watch out for that first step. It's a doozy. Rita is expressing her joy about the people of Punxsutawney and how much they love this holiday. Phil, I don't know why you don't love it. People love the groundhog, to which Phil replies, people like blood sausage too. People are morons. <laughs> people are morons. His interactions with the B&B owner, I think, tend to be some of his best lines. And I have used before, do you ever have deja vu? And she says, I don't know, but I can check with the chef. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't read the script for this. How much of these lines do you think are Danny Rubin and how much of them do you think are Ramus and how much do you think are just Bill Murray riffing? I think a lot of the comedy stuff is Ramus and Murray. I think that the original script from everything I've read was much more serious and a lot of the jokes were added later. And I think that's part of what the original screenwriter didn't like was that it was turned into more of a traditional comedy rather than a black comedy where the comedy came from the, the situation instead of the lines. I think I had read too that Murray was kind of on that side where he felt like Ramus was making it too funny and he yeah. was more interested in the philosophical end of things. Yeah, and I think in, you know, Bill Murray has said in recent years that he thinks this was one of his best films and that he was wrong in that. And I think he was absolutely wrong. I like, agree with that. The darkness is there, but you can also ignore it and just focus on the funny jokes. I yeah. think that's a good way to do it. You know, I mean, he does kill himself many <laughs> times in this movie. I don't know how much darker you want it to get. <laughs> Most of the lines that we have mentioned are funny lines. Right. How do you write? Because, you know, I, I was a full disclosure. I was a screenwriting major in film yep. school. You were in film school. I was. I, I also focused on screenwriting. And so in your experience, how do you write a funny line that isn't just haha? Anytime I write comedy stuff, you really have to write it without the joke first and then go back and add in the, the punchline jokes. There's situational jokes where just the situation is funny. And then there's like setup and punchline type stuff. And I think a lot of this movie, and I'm, I'm betting the first draft of this was much more of those just situational things. Like it's darkly comic that he's living these things over and over again. Mm -hmm. But like, you know, making the jokes about you used to take the rat out and eat it. That's probably a punch up line from Harold Ramis later or, you know, an ad lib. God bless whoever put that in the it's script. So too. Good. And it's a hundred percent accurate. Yeah. That is exactly what used to happen is they used to... Eat the groundhog on Groundhog okay. Day. Well, you yeah. know, I've never had Groundhog, but it doesn't sound very good. Great written movie. It is a rock solid script. It's fun. It's funny. It's really interesting. You can let yourself fall down the rabbit hole of thinking about all the implications of what happens and have a really interesting philosophical discussion about it. Or you can just enjoy it for, you know, a man with a, a groundhog driving off a cliff and exploding. You know, you can enjoy all of the aspects of this. You said one earlier that probably sums up the movie really well, which is what if there is no tomorrow? There wasn't one today. Yeah. Which I think is a great lead in to this happy and funny and quirky film starts to take maybe uh, a bit of a turn. Yes. Yeah. Let's get back to our feature presentation. Let's do it. So back with Phil, actually yes. back with his clock. I mentioned earlier, I asked whether or not you had seen the film in a theater. Mm -hmm. I remember seeing it in a theater because of the shot that kicks off this section. Is that where the clock flips over and it's huge? The clock takes up the entire screen oh, yeah, and the sound design has it, you know, boom, as the thing goes over. I just remember thinking, good Lord, that's enormous yeah. when watching this in the theater. And it has the impact that's meant to have it there, which is just oppressiveness. Yes. Like I said at the beginning, this is kind of set up to follow these steps of grief, you know, and now we are in for sure the doldrums. We're in the depression part of it where it is everything is just miserable and he hates it. And all of the fun and the novelty has worn off. His superpower is not interesting anymore. And he just wants nothing other than to escape this loop. 
And you can tell now how much he's hating, whereas before it was kind of fun and interesting to be in the loop. You can tell how much he's hating the loop now from a scene where he's sitting with everybody in the uh, in the B&B. They're watching Jeopardy yes. and he knows all the answers and drinking at the same time. It's just like, yep. this is what I do with my day. He's seen this episode a hundred times. Also, a little shout out to the Finger Lakes, which is from my part of New York State. That is where my wife and I got engaged. And congratulations. There you go. He's back at Gobbler's Knob after all of this, doing his stand up for the bajillion time. This is where he screams at them about you know people lining up, freezing their butts off to worship a rat. This yep. is where he gives that line you gave uh, about it's going to be cold and last you for the rest of your life. And it is the kickoff to what becomes the snowball down the hill yes. of Phil's emotional state. Yeah. And so we now we, we get the scene that leads to the second of our car chases in this film because he realizes in his mind, this day is never going to end. This winter is never going to end unless this groundhog gets stopped. And so he decides that's the conclusion he comes to <laughs> is the groundhog. the groundhog. Yeah. You know, steals the groundhog and, and takes off in the red pickup truck. And we get a, a pretty good car chase scene here. I like it. There's a, there's a little Tokyo drift going yeah, on as part of it. Yeah, he's got some good drifting skills yeah. for, you know, a 90s pickup truck. Which you find out after seeing this car chase happening is not really Phil doing that. It is the quadruped driving right, the, exactly. the truck, which is our groundhog. I think played by a groundhog named Scooter. You know, I hope he gets his star on the Walk of Fame yeah. soon. He had no lines either. I wonder if he was uh, working for scale. <laughs> he and the old man got the same pick. <laughs> car chase car chase ends up in the quarry yep where there's sort of this not really a game of chicken but but kind standoff. of a standoff yeah yeah where he kind of disappears around the back and they realize they've blocked him in and so he comes out starts gunning the engine and they're not sure what he's gonna do and he heads straight for him and we've got you know rita's there and they're filming it and chris elliott's filming it and what's gonna happen and then he veers left and off the cliff he goes for the very first time phil takes the drastic step of offing himself yes and the groundhog in this instance poor groundhog which seems like the sadder piece of it <laughs> at true. that point. Yeah, because, I mean, Phil gets to come back. I don't know about the groundhog. That's true. We never do see the groundhog again, I don't <laughs> think. Flies into a quarry, I guess. Yeah, and crashes. And crashes and explodes, and, and that's... <laughs> that. That is, I think, one of Chris Elliott's better lines in this, where he says, he could still be okay, and then his <laughs> truck explodes. Yeah, he's probably not. He's okay. probably not okay. <laughs> he has one right before that, too, in the car chase that I like, where uh, Rita says, why would someone steal a groundhog? And Chris Elliott says, I can think of a few reasons. <laughs> Pervert. <laughs> <laughs> it would be an interesting twist for Phil's character. And boom, Phil blows up, the groundhog blows up, and that should be the end of Phil. But to his dismay, he's back. He's back. He wakes up the next morning exactly where he has been. He cannot escape this loop no matter what, even if he kills himself. But he's going to find out for sure if there's any way he can get out. And so he starts, I guess, continues because he did it in the last one. But we get a series of what could be. And are in this movie like really dark moments. This is as dark as the movie's going to get. Yes. But this could be an exceptionally dark movie and not a comedy where he is finding new and inventive ways to kill himself. Yes. And they manage to keep it just on the side of entertaining instead of depressing. And (laughs) I don't know if it's the first one, but when he goes downstairs and grabs the toaster. Yes. And then takes it in the bathtub with him. And instead of seeing it, we then see everyone downstairs watching as the lights flicker. And that that's a good way to do it. It gets dark. Let's just say yeah, that. It, it gets, gets dark. It gets really dark. Lots of ways to go. He can't seem to find a way that will stick. And we see the obvious stunt man when he jumps off the top of the roof. So obvious. 
And also, we see a little bit of a breaking of the way the story is normally told, where after he dies, we see Rita and Larry visiting him in the morgue. And so we usually don't see past when his loop resets. You know, that's a little bit of a difference there. That's the only time yeah. that I can think of where that gets broken. Yeah, I mean, I guess when he explodes, it's the same kind of thing. We, I guess that's true. We, we stick with them for a minute and then go back. But yeah, a little bit different. I think they just wanted that joke of them kind of commenting on him in, in the morgue. What conclusion then does he come to when killing himself doesn't work? <laughs> the conclusion he comes to is that he is a god. Yes. When someone asks you if you're a god, <laughs> you say yes. He learned that lesson well. And and goes on to tell Rita that. Rita doesn't know the backstory. Rita's new it's new to Rita. No, Rita met him twelve hours ago. Uh-huh. And he's lived decades with her now. And it's a really interesting scene where he now goes around the cafe and shows that he knows everything about every person in the cafe. And is telling her when she questions why he's telling her this, he tells her, I want you to believe in me. Yes. <laughs> like a god. Also, little note, the couple who are getting married, the yep. man, Michael Shannon, his debut film appearance. That's right. As the uh, young guy getting married who later gets the WrestleMania tickets. Michael Shannon, who uh, most recently or, or almost most recently is, was Walt Thromby in Knives Out. That's right. Yeah. Know him I mean, there. he was... He is a terrifying actor who always plays the scariest characters. But in here, he's a, a friendly young man getting married. The girl that he is getting married to went on to have a very long career doing animation voices. Oh, cool. So you'll find both of them working strong even today. That's great. You yeah. know, Groundhog Day leads to big things, I guess. I, apparently. It did for... Uh... Bill Murray. Yeah. This is another, I think, symbol of how long he's been in this loop is that he knows literally everything about every person in this cafe. Yeah. And he can time out exactly what they're going to say, what's going to happen when. He even writes down on the napkin what Larry's going to say when he comes in. And I think this is our first glimpse of a better fill. Mm. Like, the, then it leads into the scene where they're like throwing the cards into the hat and it's a very sweet moment. But he's finally just being a person and not making it move. He's not trying to get something. He's just trying to be a decent guy and yeah. just be a friend to Rita. It, it feels like the turning point to me. And this is the moment, too, whereas she's been skeptical of anything that he says. Right. The one thing he's able to do really to prove to her, or to get to get just any moment of maybe she believes him, is writing down what Larry's going to say. Right. Because the other stuff, it's, it's interesting. The dishes fall, all of that. It's creepy. But it's when he writes down what Larry's going to say and she looks at it and Larry arrives and says the exact same thing. Right. That's she, the moment she She finally is on board. And I think it's also her perspective helps change him. This is where we see her kind of natural optimism saying, like, maybe this doesn't have to be a bad thing. Maybe this can be a good thing. Like, think of what you could do with this time. And I think that will lead us to our next section of loops, you know, getting out of this depression loop and finding a new purpose. That's a nice thing that she's been set up for way before. Of, yes. You know, she kind of is a one note character mm -hmm. in that she's just positive. That's who she is all right. the time. And it's being around her so much and being around her at the right moment in his journey yes. where she reframes this, you know, you could get away with anything thing to you could get away with anything. Like yeah. you you could go do great things. Yeah, you could you could live a lifetime of stuff that exactly. most people would love to have the time because I mean what's our most valuable resource is time right mm -hmm. I mean that's what we're always short on as adults is time and this guy has all the, literally all the time in the world he can do anything and everything anyone has ever wanted to do as long as it's in a small Pennsylvania town <laughs> in the snow <laughs> so he decides to do that and starts off his next day and series of days by doing things that we have not seen him do before starting with on his walk into town, 
he actually stops this time and gives money to Pop, the guy standing yes. on the street corner. We'll talk a little bit more about Pop in a few, but yeah, I, I think that's an important sign that he's reevaluating why he's stuck here. And goes to do one of the things that Rita had set up very early on of what she likes in a guy, you know, whether he's doing it for that reason or he's just doing it to get better. He goes and decides he's going to learn to play piano. Yes. <laughs> which leads to a, a really wonderful moment of him offering $1,000 to piano teacher to stop teaching the little girl <laughs> she's currently teaching and just, teach him. Just kicks the girl out on the front porch immediately. And then we get a nice long scene of her walking away looking mad while we hear <laughs> Phil terribly playing the piano in the background. Which I think the terrible piano playing I read was Bill Murray. Mm -hmm. having learned the song by ear yeah. and was just playing it back by ear. He learned just enough to do the close-up on him playing one section in the final scene and the rest is, is someone else. So let's talk about that song just for a second. When I saw the movie, it's a pleasant song. It gets played over and over again. Yeah. And we, we hear it. It's a classical music piece that he's practicing. It's a Rachmaninoff piece called Rhapsody on a Theme of Pagnini, Opus 43. Okay. Rhapsody on a Theme of Pagnini, Opus 43 is an Easter egg. Oh, really? Did you know that? No. That piece plays a very significant part in another Time Twister movie, which we may or may not be covering this season of subgenre, called Somewhere in Time. Oh, Which was a Christopher Reeve movie that deals with... Oh, yeah. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. I remember that one. Different timelines going on, things very like that. But that that's sort of a subtle callback to that film, if you know anything, if you know to listen for it. Very nice. Yeah. Not, um, not a lot of Rachmaninoff Easter eggs, so it's good to see one. <laughs> learns to play piano. Yes, slowly but surely. Learns to ice sculpt. Yes, uh, does a very good job ice sculpting. Also, I noticed just from a production standpoint, it looked like the ice sculpture was melting. I bet they filmed that closer to the end of the production schedule. I would imagine. And, and a lot of them sitting out there melting. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah. that's. I'm sure that was a rough day. Yeah. <laughs> Figures out a way to handle Ned. Yes. He finally figures out that being way too nice to him creeps out Ned and he leaves. <laughs> what are you doing later? He gives, it, gives him a big long hug, an overly long, uh, too familiar hug, and what are you doing later? Yeah. These are all wonderful things where we're seeing Phil better himself. He, we see him getting a little bit more well-read while he's sitting in, uh, in the diner, things like that. Yep. But it also gets us to another moment of darkness yes. where Phil is going to sh actually shine some light this time instead of create the darkness. And this has to do with the homeless guy pop. I've always remembered this scene very strongly from the movie because like, I think it's a key moment for the character, but also it's just, it's shot well, it's done well. And you know, the idea is no matter what he does, he cannot fix this problem. Like no matter how many times he does the loop, he can't prevent homeless man from dying at the end of the night. And he tries all these different things. He gets him soup. He takes him to the hospital earlier. He does all this stuff and it still, he just dies at the same time every night. I think in other time loop stories, you'll see similar ideas. Uh, I can think of a couple that, you know, where there's kind of these fixed points in time that, you know, you cannot avoid no matter how much you try. And I think it changes him drastically. And it, also an interesting, just side note, in the loops where he's helping the old man, you can see the kid that falls out of the tree later in the hospital with a broken leg in a wheelchair because Phil wasn't there to catch him because he was helping the old guy instead. So later on, he helps that kid and keeps him from falling. I think we've talked in previous times on subgenre about how definitely me and I think you two get more emotional a lot easier at movies. Oh, yeah. Once you become a parent, it turns you into a real wimp when it comes to movies. Oh, yeah. No, I'll, I'll ball at the drop of a hat on films. <laughs> and this scene in this funny ass movie that I've been watching and loving this whole time, you get to this scene. This scene destroys me. Oh, it's so sad. Although I will say this nurse 
gives the worst diagnosis of everything. Yeah. He was just old. Come on. It was just his time. Sometimes people are just old. Well, okay. That's not... <laughs> Aren't you a nurse? <laughs> this sounds like a Star Wars thing. She died of a broken heart. Like, oh, come on, man. This is where I weep in the course of the movie. Yep. And then this I have to very come out of that yeah. in the next scene. And this is where Phil takes the lessons that he's learned looping over and over with Pop dying. Because it hits so hard, makes it feel correct that he changes. Like, I mean, if it was just an, like a, a little brush off of a scene, it wouldn't work. But it hits the audience and it hits him. And you can tell it changes him permanently. And allows him to go do his stand-up and provide this very, almost like a eulogy, uh, you know, style of a speaking, just very poetic and talking about the meaning of Groundhog Day and a long and lustrous winter and things like that. And the entire town gathered around watching this weatherman give his speech as if it's the most important thing of the day. And it's almost like he couldn't help the old man. So now he's decided he's going to help everyone else. Yes. And it's a, it's a great turn and it feels earned, which is important. And the helping everybody else thing starts to play itself out now, too, because as you mentioned, there's a kid that's going to fall out of a tree. Yeah, he's exactly. got to get there on time to catch. And there is a flat tire for some of the uh, the ladies that are driving through town yeah, that he's got to go fix. And their beautiful yeah. 1968 Dodge Dart, a very nice car. Even probably most importantly, he saves the mayor from choking to death, which, yes. which apparently happened later that day in the yeah. other timeline. Yeah, I mean, and we kind of now start to hear about this end of day party, which we haven't heard much about before. But, you know, and then when as we get to this gathering, we start to see all of his good works coming together. Mm -hmm. I think my favorite part of that entire sequence is right after he saves Brian Doyle Murray from mm -hmm. from choking to death. As he's leaving and turns around, he reaches into his pocket, pulls out a cigarette lighter and at exactly the right moment lights the cigarette <laughs> of the lady who is sitting a few tables back because obviously this has happened before. Yes, he comes around every day to save this guy. So he's really like he's the hero of the town now and he has a loop. He goes on every day to do good works. And it seems to be fulfilling him. It makes him happier. So you mentioned the party. Yes. We are back at the hotel bar, the same hotel bar with the same bartender that's yeah. there watching everything go on. But this time sitting at the bar, instead of it being Rita, it's Nancy. And unfortunately for Nancy, <laughs> she is being hovered over by Larry, who has decided to shoot his shot. He has no game at all. None. He's the lamest guy you've ever seen, but he's decided he's going to go for it. And she is wanting to get out of there and go to the party. He is asking her whether she's ever seen the inside of a news van. It's rough. It's rough. <laughs> and decides, okay, I'm not going to win this way, but if she's going to the party, so am I. I'm going to go with her and yeah. just latch on, which is what he does. Yes. And so now we get the party scene, and basically we're seeing all the people that Phil has helped all in one place, which is a nice way to wrap it up. Which Rita gets a little bit of a hint of. As Nancy and Larry are heading to the party, they run into Rita. Uh, Rita says maybe they should tell Phil there's a party. The piano lady, I think it is, is there again and says, oh, Phil, Connors? <laughs> yeah, he's he's in the party already somewhere, giving Rita a hint that something is up with Phil that she hadn't expected. Yeah, he's up on stage as the piano man. He is, and jamming. Finally jamming. He's learned. He's, he's actually good now. I like the whole vibe, uh, jazz thing with the party. Everybody's yeah. rocking. It's Philip on stage. Yeah, it gives the little hand signal for the van to stop, yeah. which is it's great. It's a great shot of him in the sunglasses, kind of giving the, the all stop. That's good. And then plays a jazzy version of this piece we've seen him practicing, the Rachmaninoff piece, for Rita. And you know, she is appropriately interested and impressed. For which the piano teacher takes immediate credit. Right. He, he's my, my student. My student. Which 
would imply then that he had taken a piano lesson that day before the party. Right. He went to one more lesson to brush up before the party. Uh huh. And played that well, apparently, yes. for her on his first lesson. That's, yeah. That's pretty impressive. Yeah. And so now everyone's coming over to him. You know, the, the piano teacher takes over for him on the piano once he finishes. And now he starts meeting all the people that he's helped. And this is where we get Fred and Debbie, like you said, who is uh, Michael Shannon and uh, the lady whose name I couldn't remember. Hinden Walsh is her name who are getting married. She was maybe having some second thoughts. He has Phil used, helped him out. Phil has helped him out and is now presenting them with a gift. WrestleMania tickets for Michael Shannon. Another good band. <laughs> <laughs> the point really of this scene, I think A is just to introduce Rita to the fact that Phil is well known and has a b- bunch of things going on that she's not aware of, but it's also to give her an opportunity to prove her interest in him yeah. further. So, and we do that in the Bachelor auction. In yeah. the Bachelor auction. Yeah, she's finally choosing him instead of him trying to pick up her. Mm-hmm. You know? And I think that's an important flip in their dynamic that makes it clear that things have changed. And Rita spends her life savings on <laughs> what, a very small amount. She's checking her checkbook, though. So $339.88. Phil, Phil's the prize. The whole town's bidding on Phil. Yeah, exactly. And she, she manages to outbid everybody for Phil. Yeah. And they need somebody to follow <laughs> Phil up on stage. Chris Elliott then receives the appropriate amount of bids for Chris Elliott. That would be... Two bids. Two bids, and the old lady gets it. That's right. And then we get one more appearance from Ned Ryerson. Yes. And uh, So this is the last loop, not to spoil it, but is oh, Phil man. stuck with this crazy insurance forever? Yes. <laughs> he really bought way too much insurance <laughs> He buys every bit of insurance he can buy from <laughs> Ned Ryerson, and Ned Ryerson could not be more thrilled. He's so happy. It's made his whole life. We may mention this a little later, but I have heard the explanation or the theory on the insurance purchase as being the way that the loop is broken. Oh, really? Because a person who doesn't see that there are any consequences to their actions, that doesn't uh, think about other people, all of those things that you... that so he's a, planning for the future. A now. human would be. He now sees that there is responsibilities that he needs to have in the future. And that also, is, he is the way he to is helping someone who he hated, which yes. is a big change from punching him in the face. <laughs> he could still do that. That yeah, it, it is a possibility. True. And then uh, and then we get to go outside and see this beautiful snow sculpture that he makes. He's using his sculpting powers, I guess, that he learned from chainsaw sculpting to sculpt Rita's face in yeah. snow. And it's a beautiful sculpture. And uh, it was interesting. Stephen Tobolowsky has uh, an interview he gave where he was talking about, he, he said he thinks the reason this movie is great is that we don't want Phil to get the girl. We resent his smugness. That's the way he put it. And he said, the magic of the movie is that Phil becomes the kind of guy that we want to see find love. Mm. And then the greatest gift for him is to become finite again. Like his infinite self was not who he needed to be. He needed to become someone who was mortal again, basically. You know? And so I think in this scene with the snow sculpture, we see this Phil. Like this is, this is a totally different guy than we started the movie with. Yeah. This is a guy who cares about people, who is artistic, who is open to things, and who is not pursuing an agenda. Like he's just being himself. And it's by doing, by sculpting this for her that he's able to show her, you know, that he knows her. He pays attention to her. This is something he's done only for her. And it's it's just this personalized gesture from him to her. But can we talk for a minute about that sculpture? Mm. It's really creepy. (laughs) Am I the only one that thinks it's a creepy sculpture? It's creepy. I kind of like it. Do you? Yeah. I mean, it's beautifully done. 
Andy McDowell has a very sculptable face. I agree, but, but if, that if, looks nothing like Andy McDowell. <laughs> if you sculpt someone's face on a first date, you're a creeper. Like, I, I guess that's true. It's too much, man. That's, that's true. too much. It's the hair. I think. I think it's. Oh, the there's hair. no hair. She's just got, got like a big. Snow, it looks like snow yeah, fro. Yeah, a snow fro. That's exactly what it is. But this does something for her. It sparks whatever feeling she has for him even further. He tells her he's happy. She says she's happy too. And it starts to snow and that gives them something to walk home together in. Yes. And then they get to spend time together in the evening. And uh, apparently it was a big debate production wise about whether when they woke up, they should be in the same clothes or not. Right. Whether they should have the implication that they slept together or if they just fell asleep. And apparently they decided that they should be in the same clothes. So it looked like they just kind of fell asleep in mid-conversation and kept it from being like he was trying to pursue her and more just they were being together as, you know, friends. She's been in his room before. Yes. She's been in the house and she's been in the room before. The last time she was in his room, even laying next to him, he woke up the next morning and she was gone. Right. And so when he wakes up, the morning after this, after they've had this nice time together and have laid on the bed together, he wakes up and at first it appears that he's alone again. Right. We hear the song. We hear you got, I got you, babe. It's right then that her hand reaches across his body to turn off the alarm, which you've started to hear the announcers on there say some different things. Yeah. Oh, not this song again. Yeah, we just played this yesterday, and the loop is finally broken. And the loop is finally no broken. No one has ever been so excited to see February 3rd before. <laughs> the nice bit of business here that he does is he pinches her. Yeah, <laughs> That's not usually how it works. And he runs to the window, and it's snowy outside, finally. it's There's been consequences to the actions. Things have continued on. He's been freed from his prison. And the, the line I like from him is something is different. Anything different is good. Yes. Then you think, you know, if he really was stuck in that loop for decades, the change would be absolutely exhilarating. And they have built, he has built with her over these however many tens or thousands of years it is, the ability to be the person that he needs to be, A, to break the loop, but B, to be with her. To be the kind of person that you feel would deserve to be with someone kind and nice like her is, you know, he's a decent guy now. He was a miserable prick. And now he's a decent guy. That's a good character arc. And we get a nice little ending to the movie where they go outside in the snow that has appeared. You yep. know, there wasn't snow ever before. And Phil gives his last line of, we, we should, should live. live here. We'll rent to start. We'll rent to start. Which apparently that that last part was an ad lib by him, but uh, they kept it in. And that's... he takes her and there's kind of a picket fence around the uh, B&B. Yeah. And he lifts her over the fence and then jumps the fence himself. And it's kind of a sweet but awkward little moment between them that I believe actually came about because that gate was frozen shut and they couldn't do anything else. <laughs> that sounds about right. But it seems to work. It yeah. seems to work. And uh, man, what just what a satisfying ending. I mean, it, it feels like an earned resolution to the story. And I think that's part of why the movie works is because the ending hits well. What are they going to do for a living? My goodness, I don't know. Well, not if they, if they live there, I guess he could be the new piano teacher. <laughs> he could kick the old lady he's, out. He's kind of better than her now, yeah, I think. Is. I mean, he's a town hero. You just live on free dinners forever. And that's it. That's Groundhog Day from 1993. We made it from top to bottom. And I think you use the word satisfying. I think it's satisfying. And writing time-related stuff is so hard. If you've ever tried to write a script with time shenanigans in it, it very easily turns into just garbage. And this one does it so well. There's a reason it's like a cultural touchstone. It's just great. 
I never really named this section of the podcast before where we kind of wrap things up, but yeah. I'm going to do it. What the hell? I'm going to do it. We're going to make it a section. I'm going to make a little sound effect I'll play oh, in a minute yeah, for it. it. But we're going to call it Last Looks. So here's Last Looks. Last Looks. Definitely not that. Uh-huh. <laughs> really just last thoughts here on the film. You know, we talked about it being satisfying. I had read this as being, and you had mentioned actually one of these, as being a movie that was kind of divided into four parts mm-hmm. in, in terms of the theory of it, yeah. of Phil. And the first one was the narcissism. Phil is into Phil. Yeah, and that's he's all only he interested see. in himself, which then leads to hedonism. Yeah. Do whatever you can because there's no consequences, which then leads to nihilism. Right. Nothing matters. So I might as well not be here, which finally finishes with there was a Collider article that talked about calling the last part Aristotelianism, Ar- Arist- Aristotelianism. That's that's terrible. it's not a what thing. A terrible name. With- <laughs> How about selflessness? Selfless, correct. <laughs> Which is living for others, not just yourself. Yeah, caring, actually, like worrying about more than just your own ego. And I hadn't really thought about it in those terms before kind of breaking it down for this film, but I think that makes a whole lot of sense. Yeah, it does. And I think that's part of why it works is that you don't have to sit and break this down like that. But when you do, it gives you an extra layer of appreciation because it, it flows so well. You You see why things happen how he reacts to them then starts a new section and then something happens in that section to take you to the next one. It all flows very correctly and it feels like what someone would really do in these situations. Like you'd start off, you know, it'd be like being, you know, stuck in a a building overnight, like a store or something. You'd start off by just doing whatever you wanted. Then you'd get real worried that you're never getting out. And then you're going to like try and figure out the right thing to do. So watching him go through that is very satisfying and very interesting. And because he starts off, like, because I think this is where casting Bill Murray is the genius move, because you need a guy that you want to watch, even though he sucks. Like, if you just have someone unlikable, this movie doesn't work. He has to be likable, but you feel like you wouldn't want to hang out with him. That's a hard line to walk. And that's something Bill Murray does really well. I've done that for most of my life. You really have. (laughs) I'm likable, but you probably don't want to hang out with me. (laughs) Are we done yet? (laughs) The package that came together to make this film from the script by Danny Rubin that was then massaged by Ramis yep. into something a little a little funnier, but with philosophical edges, the directing by Ramis, the nuance of performance by Murray and the rest of the cast members around him. And then finally, just some of those other elements in it, like the music that kind of make this create the emotion that is appropriate at the right time in this. Yep. Gives it, it gives it its own feel. It yeah. gives it its own feel. All of that, I think unlike a lot of other movies that try to put funny and serious together, this works really well for some reason that I don't know that I can 100% put my finger on. Yeah, I think it's just a great concept with a tight script that then also has good jokes in it. So like you could take out all the jokes and it would still be a good movie. So you're just adding an extra layer of frosting to the cake, you know, with the jokes. I could really use some cake. I know, I don't have any cake in here. Cake in Studio K, good band name. Cake may have already been taken as a (laughs) band name. It's possible. (laughs) I don't, I've never heard of them. I'm, I'm not going the distance to learn about that. To cap all of this off, our discussion of the film, is there any other movie that you like, have watched, know of, that really fits that same niche as Groundhog Day, or does Groundhog Day kind of live on its own 
you know, in its own corner. To me, it almost feels like it does yeah, because I, I mean, think there's there's, you know, Back to the Future, but not the same. Back to the Future is probably the closest analog to this movie where but it's less comedic. Yes. You know, I mean, it's it has the sci fi element. It has the fun with time and it has the kind of playful tone, but it doesn't have it's not a straight up comedy. It is an adventure movie with a couple jokes. This is a comedy with a philosophical underpinning. And I think that puts it in its own category. And it's part of why it's been 30 years and we're talking about it for hours here because it's still good. I agree. Great movie. Nick, you got through the film. I did it. But you're not done yet because as always, when I bring you into the studio here, we have to do something that uh, whether or not the people like it, I like it. Is this where I get hit in the face with a stick? Uh, That's later. Okay. (laughs) This is called You Can't Handle the Truth. You Can't Handle the Truth is the quiz segment on this show. Every time we play You Can't Handle the Truth, you are playing for a prize, which I have absolutely no way of awarding you and wouldn't even if I did. And so today you are playing for $339.88. Can I also get a vest? (laughs) I think I should have had the vest. (laughs) We're going to make vests. We'll make vests for the next All right, I want a vest. All right. Three multiple choice questions. ready. All right, here we go. Question number one. Groundhogs make lots of noises. One of them, used to warn their colonies of nearby danger, kind of resembles this high-pitched chittering sound that they do. Okay. Due to this behavior, they have earned which nickname, which also shares its name with a brand of whiskey? Are they called A, Jim Beams, <laughs> B, Whistle Pigs, or C, Pappy Van Winkles? I mean, I wish it was Pappy Van Winkle, but it is Whistle Pig. Are you confident on that I'm answer? I'm confident on that answer. Of course it is. They are called whistle pigs. My father has had a multi-generational war with groundhogs that have been trying to eat his garden for years. And I think if there was a Heim family crest, it would be a groundhog in the crosshairs. Your dad has been caddyshacking? He for... has been caddyshacking with groundhogs since I was a child. And my grandfather before him. Groundhogs, as he may know, make lots of noises that you may or may not want them to make near you. There is that whistle. There's also some chirps. There's some grunts, the latter of which, the grunt, uh, they make when they're happy or excited about something like eating, socializing, or as I found out, sunbathing. That's when I grunt as well. (laughs) All right. You got question number one. Let's go to question number two. I'm ready. Most of Phil's inner circle. And the Phil they're talking about is not Phil Connors, but Phil the Groundhog. Phil the Groundhog. That is correct. Most of the inner circle, the guys in the top hats, bear colorful nicknames alongside their real nicknames as being part of the inner circle. Okay. Which of the following is not the nickname of a current inner circle member? Is it A, Magic Mike? I don't like that. Is it B, Shingle Shaker? I don't like that either. Or C, Big chill. That one's a little bit better. All right. So one of those is not true. One of those is not true. The other two are absolutely current nicknames of Inner Circle members. Trying to imagine the type of person who's wearing a top hat in Punxsutawney and whether they would be called Magic Mike or not. I'm going to say Magic Mike. You're saying that A, Magic Mike is not. I'm going to say they are not called Magic Mike. That is correct. Magic Mike is not a real nickname, but Shingle Shaker That's terrible. And Big Chill both are. Shingle Shaker is actually the nickname of uh, Tom Dunkel, who is the current president. And the secretary, Jason Grusky, is named Big Chill. The nicknames are supposed to relate to either their careers or weather phenomena. Wow. Yeah. So what would your nickname be? Podcasting McBoatface. (laughs) Mine would be WrestleMania tickets for Michael Shannon. (laughs) 
That's two. Okay, all right. Then I'm I'm already wearing my vest out of here. I can tell. All right, let's get the third one just for the gravy on top. Let's do it. Question number three. Nothing really should surprise either of us about Bill Murray anymore. But did you know that besides being a movie star and a pop culture icon and periodically popping up in people's photos, <laughs> he also owns a restaurant? It's called Harold's Cabin. It's in Charleston, South Carolina, and he's a co-owner. According to their menu, which of these play on words cocktails can you currently order there? So one of these is real. One of these is real. Okay, let's hear it. Is it A, the dry gin martini? Mur, as in Murray. Oh, that's terrible. Uh-huh. I hope that's not it. Is it B, the son of a peacher man? Ugh. Or is it C, sweet vermouth rocks with a twist? Oh, man. I want it to be the third one because that's the most pertinent to our film that we're talking about today. But it's probably not. But I'm going with it. C. C, sweet vermouth rocks with a twist. Yeah. Ah. No, I'm sorry. I agree with you. That's the one that should be on the menu. It is actually Son of a Peacher Man. Son of a Peacher Man? What it is, is a Chipotle-infused bourbon, local peach puree, and lemon, and no real word on whether or not that whiskey comes from Whistlepig. <laughs> I mean, that sounds pretty decent as a drink, but I mean, we could have done better with the puns, I think. I agree with you. Well, you got two out of three. That's yes. fantastic. Give me my vest. That is a winning, uh, winning ratio, and uh, so you are... The winner of $339.88. Congratulations to you, Nick Heim. Thank you. That means it's time for Rave Rental or Refund. This is where we give our final rating to this movie. Is it a rave? It's the best thing since sliced bread or thereabouts. It's a rental. I like it. I'll catch it if it's on, but I'm not going to go out of my way. Or is this a refund? I hate this movie. Please give me my money back. What say you, Nick Heim? I mean, this is a, a definite slam dunk rave. Although I would say just because it's from the 90s, you should rent it from a video store because that would be the most appropriate. Maybe I'm sorry, to, did you say video store? Yeah, go to go to Home Video in Leroy, New York and get it with your little laminated card. Or to Video Update where oh, I worked in, in nice. college. You could get it there as well. That doesn't See, I think people anymore. that did, went to Blockbuster really missed out on the, the weirdo local stores yep. that were better than Blockbuster. <laughs> um, yeah, this is an all-time favorite of mine. I have watched it dozens of times. Also, I mean, it's from the right time in my life from when I was in formative years of being a teenager and enjoying Bill Murray comedies. It was great, and I still love it. And I think the sci-fi concept underneath is handled really well, and I think the performances are great, and I think the character arcs are great. And, I mean, we we talked about there's some parts that are better than others, and, you know, the music at the beginning is bad, but none of that ever sticks. It all just feels like it doesn't matter because the heart of it is so good, and I think that really really comes down to the main duo of Bill Murray and Andy McDowell and how charming they are, how much chemistry they have, and how well they play off each other. And the change of our main character is earned, and that's the main thing you want in a film. And so then doing it in a really inventive, cool scenario that has remained like a cultural touchstone for many years is just what elevates it up to next level. This is a never skip. For, Absolutely. For me, I'm never going to see this come on TV and not stop and watch the no, entire thing. I'll watch thing. it every time. And it's for every reason that you just said. And it's the fact, too, that it's a movie that I can watch either as background noise yep. because I know it so much and it's just fun and it's light. But I can also sit down if I really want to have an interaction with a movie on a level that makes me feel good and makes me feel bad and makes me feel right. emotions just like feel, this. Yeah. It gives me everything. It's great. I mean, there's a reason that it's 30 years later and people still reference this film and we're talking about it. It's because it's outstanding. 
I don't think we can say anything else about it. No, I mean, I I, I think anything else we say will just be repeating what we've already said because it's great. And we wouldn't want to repeat ourselves on a movie about repeating oneself. You know, that would just be too on the nose. Didn't you just say that? Didn't you just say that? All right, Nick Heim. It's time to kick you out of here. But before I do, tell us what you got going on. Tell us what we should know. Tell us where we can find you if you're on the socials, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, social media is a blight upon humanity and should not (laughs) exist. And uh, every iteration of it has only caused further destruction to our social fabric. Word. But if you're interested to see some occasional behind-the-scenes shots of various commercials, you can find us at Junction Road Pictures on Instagram at Junction Road Pics or at JunctionRoadPictures.com. Well, I appreciate you coming back. You've been here a few times before. Yeah, I love it, man. It's fun. I want to have you back again if you'll come. I would always come back and, and talk about movies because it's one of my favorite things. And uh, talking about it with you is a blast. And I will always take Junction Road Pictures money should you like to be one of our advertisers <laughs> at any you point know, in the future. People need to know about how much I hate social media. <laughs> I need to put an ad on social media about it. <laughs> This has been Subgenre, a podcast about the movies. Subgenre is a production of Kabunki and is recorded and mixed at Studio K. This episode was written, produced, and hosted by me, Josh Dassel, alongside my guest host, advertising director and filmmaker, Nick Heim. Our theme music is Still Room on the Night Train by Ketza featuring Solar Flare. Need to hear more of us? Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen so you don't miss our new episodes here in Season 3. And catch our full catalog of back episodes while you're there. And where you can, we'd love for you to leave us your five-star review. Trust me when I say it is massive in helping other listeners find us, just like you did. Independent podcasting is expensive, y'all. So you can also support us and keep us going with your donations. Find the link to help our show at our website, subgenrepodcast.com. We also do the Insta and Twitter thing, for the moment at least, both at SubgenrePod. Coming up next, another Time Twister episode of Subgenre Season 3, so stay tuned. But in the meantime, please remember, we're all different. So no matter what your subgenre, be kind to who you meet. That's a wrap. Kabunki.